0: Whew, the Big 6-0. It's taken a long time to get here. Five years I have been doing this. And you'd think, folks, you'd think that in recognition of such an auspicious moment, I would have a very special episode lined up full of clips from the past and special guest stars and people talking about what the show means to them and big announcements for the future and this and that. Now I'm not doing any of that. Sorry. Um, I'm really not one for ceremony. I had my 50th birthday last year, and we literally did nothing. Didn't even have a special meal. I'm just not that sentimental, I guess. So while I should have done all those things, this is just going to be a regular episode where I spend probably... Much too much time answering all of your questions because I got a whole bunch more. Although, interestingly, this month is a little different because I, uh, when separating stuff out into game related and not game related, I always try to, or recently tried to also keep the game-related stuff in two buckets. One that only I could answer, because Jen wouldn't care, and ones that Jen would care about as well. And unfortunately, this month there weren't any uh, game-related questions that I think would really work for her, that she'd have much to say. So, we only have two parts today. Me talking about games, and then me and Jen talking about other stuff. And oh my gosh, is there going to be some other stuff? Because I actually did it out of order. I Jen just left. She just finished her part, and so I'm doing everything out of order. But that doesn't matter to you, because you're going to listen to it in a traditional linear format. And without any further ado, hang on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, you know the drill. You ask, I answer. Let's get going. Well, we've got our first email from um, Yannick, pronounced like Janick. Thank you, Janick. Let's see here. I've already done your personal stuff. That'll come later. But right now, you want to know, what do I think is the most innovative mechanism in a board game? In my opinion, the way time was used in Gensys was something I've never seen before. Hmm... Janik, that's a big question. That is a crazy big question. Um, I don't know. I, you know. I mean, there's amazing, innovative things happening in board games all the time. You want to choose the single biggest, biggest innovation of all time. I will go with my gut. And I will say the uh, the idea of legacy gaming. I think that is so fresh and interesting and different and transformative, and it brings an emotional and visceral connection to the experience that cannot be replicated in any other way, and pretty much no other form of entertainment provides to users. That sense of permanence, that sense of finality, um, is just uh, so meaningful and so impactful. And ever since Risk Legacy came out, in what, 2012 or something like that, uh, there have been a lot of publishers and designers who have been finding interesting and unique ways to leverage that core fundamental idea. And really, what is the legacy mechanism? The legacy mechanism is based on a decision you make during play, you irrevocably, irreparably change the game Either because you destroy something, or because you put a sticker on something that can't be removed, or you write on something, or you scratch something, or whatever it might be. Um, that th- It will never change, and from now on, you will always have to deal with the consequence of your choice, not just for the remainder of this game, but for every subsequent game. I think that is so brilliant, and so game-changing, and so revolutionary, because... I mean, gosh, what other entertainment does anything like that? The closest I could think of would maybe be some really, really, really hardcore MMOs, multi- messy multiplayer online games, where where you know, in an MMO, you do not have the opportunity to save your game and reload. You just have to live with what happens. And some of them do feature really harsh and brutal, unforgiving worlds that you're in, where you just have to live with the consequences. But in regular video games, that's unheard of. You know, movies, TV shows, books? No, of course not. I mean, you can go back and experience it any way you want. You don't make choices that fundamentally change the landscape forever. But um, board games, ripping up a card... Um, is uh, you know, and uh, you know, ripping up a card because hey, we finished the mission and we you know that's an object we're not going to do more. Yeah, that's no big deal. I'm talking about ripping up a card that is like you know, it, it it's it's like beloved by you because you've used it so much to good effect, or it's a character that you really care about, or whatever. Um, you know, or upgrading a card by fundamentally changing it so it'll never be the same again. I mean, that that is amazing, and I'm going to say that is the most innovative mechanism our industry has ever seen. Uh, um, I, I could probably be argued out of it, because like I said, it was my gut response, but I feel pretty strongly about it now, having just said all that. Next up, is there any one game I could re What would it be, and what theme would you choose? I think I've talked about this before, and then I've, other people have mentioned, what about this other one? I mean, I've had this question before, and I know my answer, the first one pops into my head, is um, Thrash and Roll, which was a game about a heavy metal rock band manager trying to get them up the billboard charts and stuff like that. And I've always said, this is so crazy. It's, it's it's not just hard, heavy metal. It's like death metal. Like, you know, really just the hardest of hardcore stuff. And like, man, why isn't this about pop? Or even country music, or just like all genres of of music because it would be so much more appealing to everybody, and that one always drives me nuts. But there are other ones like that too. Um, there was that uh card drafting game from Donald X. Vaccarino that basically was set in a kind of a Grand Theft Auto 60s gangster thing. That was it's like, oh man, why couldn't that stay the way it originally was, where it was um, you know prohibition boot uh, you know bootleggers and whatnot. I mean, there's been a few of them that have come out like that, that I really would have liked to see changed. But, you know what? In all honesty, the thing is, I have a hard time even remembering them. Because, hey, if that mean, if, if if the developer has given me a reason not to play their game anymore, I almost have to say thank you. Because that's one less game I have to worry about. Uh, because I don't feel bad. I, I, I'm not bummed that we'll never play that drafting game again, no matter how good it was. Oh, man, that's driving me nuts. What was it? It was from Queen Games. Donald X. Vaccarino. Queen Games... Uh, Vacarino Card Drafting Crime Game. Let's see if we can find it. And... The, uh, yeah, greed. Greed. Um, I, you know, I thought Greed was a really brilliant design, really clever, and I don't mind never playing it again because of its very silly theme that Jen could not stand, and I found a little bit distasteful, but was okay with. It's fine. Plenty of other games. Plenty of other games from Queen. Plenty of other games from Donald X Vacarino I can play instead. So... I, it's tough for me to answer that one. But like I said, the 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 one that always got to me the most until somebody posts and reminds me of this other one that I can't think of at the moment. Thrash and Roll really sticks out because, man, we really love that Dice Worker placement game. Alrighty. Uh, my girlfriend and I play two-player usually. So, if a game is good with two players, it stays! But there is one game in our collection we really don't like with two, but it stays for two reasons. Nostalgia, and because it's a great game. That would be El Grande. Do I have in my collection uh, a game I keep, even though the two-player scaling is not the best, and for what reason? That's a really easy answer. Uh, Yes, we have... I own one game that is unplayable at two. Although, plenty of people have tried to make two-player variants over the years, and maybe some of them are even good, but I don't even bother. Uh, We keep Dixit on our shelves, which is a three-player minimum game, although really the more players the better. Because, well, like you said, nostalgia, we have played the heck out of that game with Jen's parents um, on when they have visited us on vacation and whatnot, because they really enjoyed it. And it's also just a handy game to have around because it's so easy to teach. It's a great social lubricant of a game. Uh, You know, get to know people and and all that. Um, But it's got a little bit more going on than trivial pursuit or similar type things. So yeah, Dixit, even though, you know, as a two player game, um, you know, obviously Mysterium and, and code names are gonna be much, much better. But Dixit, I, I think will always hold on to. As for so that one stands out because it's literally the only game that does not support two player, and I'll go so far as to say it's the only game that doesn't support two player well. New. No. I've got one other. Dice Town. And we keep we keep that for the exact same reason because we've played it a lot with Jen's parents. And that game is okay at two, but I wouldn't call it good. You need to have at least four players for Dicetown to come alive. And we keep it because uh, because it makes Jen happy, knowing that it's there. And she thinks, oh, we have it if we ever need to play with somebody. So those would be the two that come to mind. Okay. Let's see here. Shaw says... I said, not Shaw. Shaw's many names. It's Gerald. All right. Uh, congrats on five years. Yes, you're right. Wow. Shaw was more prepared for this episode than I was. Not Shaw, Gerald. Gerald. Um, all right. My question is In episode 59, when you were talking about Gamma and the coronavirus, uh, is it bad to buy board games that are being delivered? I have a game that was out of stock and they're getting a new one delivered from the manufacturer's stock up. Should I be worried about anything? <laughs> dude I am not a doctor nor do I play one on TV. Of course, I get new stuff coming in the mail. actually, it's slowed down a lot over the last month. It used to be almost every day something new would show up now it's like every three or four days um, which like I said sounds silly but you know once every three or four days a new game or prototype more often shows up and here's what we're doing. With uh, anything, because you know we we're still ordering stuff from Amazon, and we're getting deliveries and things like that. Uh, whenever a delivery shows up at the door, you know we get it, we um, take it, not and we don't put it in the house. We carry it through to the back porch, put it on the ground on the back porch, use a knife and uh, open it up, but very carefully opening it up and not touching anything inside the box and then uh you know we've got I don't know, like a blanket or another box or whatever we basically pour the contents of that box into something else because we figure the con- the interior of that you know the exterior of that box has been touched literally within the last half an hour by the delivery person but the contents inside that box hasn't been touched for a couple of days that it's or or maybe even a week or so that it's taken to get to us and so i mean covid doesn't last forever and i've read repeatedly that, um, you know, uh, soft surfaces like uh, cardboard, it, it doesn't even last near as long. So uh, we, we assume the inside is clean, so we dump that, take that inside, and then we put the box in the recycling. And then the person who actually touched the exterior box goes and washes hands for two minutes. That is our prog- uh, process. We've had no problems. Now, I'll be honest. It's likely we would have had no problems if we just treated everything 100% normally because, you know you know we're not having this quarantine because everywhere you go you know every single every third person you see is infected that's not the case the vast majority of people you'll interact with are not infected but you know still the day that box showed up at our doorstep it was probably touched by four or five people And why take the chance? It doesn't hurt us to do this little silly ritual that we do. Um, We leave the knife out there too. So we haven't been cleaning it up, but you know, just, and we're very, very aware that until we wash our hands after this, well, the the person who didn't touch anything except for the interior of the box, that's how we've handled it, and we haven't been worried about anything. Um, Silly, I'm sure some of you think, but. I would feel much sillier if we didn't take these precautions. And then, and then my mom died because of that one in a thousand chance that um, you know one of the five people who touched the box that morning what, did have it and put it, and then I touched it and touched my lips and boom. Why would I do that? All right. So that's that's where we're at with that. All righty, Joshua. A fun, a fun one for the fifth year anniversary. Yay! Okay, Joshua wonders... Area control games are by their very nature rarely work with two. How can games get around that? Are there any good examples of games that do so? Alrighty. You know what, Josh... I'm going to teach a man to fish rather than go fishing for you. I'm going to walk through the process. Go to BoardGameGeek. Go to Advanced Search, which is up in the top right corner of every page on BoardGameGeek. Say, click on Filter by Collection. Type in user Rado. R-A-H-D-O. Turn off expansions. You don't need to see that. And then um, expand Mechanic and find Area Control. Although they actually call it Area Majority and then say search, or submit. And you will find... What is this? Uh, That's 10, 20, 30, 40... Looks like somewhere between 40 and 50 games that I own, that we hold on to, um, that I think are good enough to have, even though they are area control, area majority, area influence games. Um, And... That might give you an idea. Let's go ahead and look at some of these, though. Um, Spirit Island. Spirit Island stands out because it's an area control game that uh, is cooperative. And we're competing against an external force. Colonizers coming to take our our island, and we're the spirits of the island, trying to keep them away. That's a great way to make uh, strong area control uh, that that works well with two. Bring in a third AI character. Uh, Trois has a, a... it's not the main thrust of the game. It's a more minor thrust of the game. But the area control there is particularly meaningful um, because players... Uh, what is it? Each building... I think, can, if I recall correctly, they can have three meeples. And the meeples you have in a building determine what dice you get when you're um, drafting for dice. Or you're, you're actually, when you're getting your dice from a pool. And if I push somebody into that building, it'll push the, the oldest one out. And so you're kind of jockeying. That feels okay to us because... Well, you know, there's kind of this trans, uh, you know, I was going to say transcendental, not that song, transitory. There's this transitory nature to it. It doesn't really feel like these are areas we own, because our foothold on them is so tentative. And you know it's so easy to get pushed out, but then if I want back in, I can just push right back in. There's not a sense of stakes. Um, Kingdom Builder is another one. Why do we like Kingdom Builder? Another strength for area control that makes it appreciable for us is an area control game where once you have taken land, it cannot be taken from you. So it's it's less of a vying for, oh, you've got two people there, and then I'll put three people there, and then you'll put four people there, and then eventually it will get resolved. And because I've got four people there, I get everything. And you have three people, and you get nothing. That's the worst example of area control. I, I want nothing to do with It feels very... Primitive and old fashioned, but an area control game where no, once I've got it, it's mine and um, it's up to me to decide what to do with it. That feels um, less mean because you know, we're, we're just putting our foot down, we're, you know, we're claiming our land and we'll use it to the best of our abilities, but we don't take it from each other. I really appreciate that. Um, the Lancaster is interesting. Is Lancaster really... well, Lancaster is a worker placement game where I can put a stronger worker on a spot that you were on and kick you out. To me, that's always felt like an auction. And I don't... you could argue an auction is a form of area control. We're controlling the auction um, by putting successfully more powerful units there in the form of bids. But you're really getting into the weeds there, I suppose. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think... I, I don't think there's anything implicitly wrong... With area control in a two-player game, it's more like like any good game. You're really focusing on ensuring that the two-player experience uh, is meaningful. Uh, you know, an area control game can certainly go bad for a two-player if the game doesn't scale if the developers don't take into account. Look, there's only one other person, because that that fundamentally changes the nature of everything. When there's a third player at the table, everything I do to you is slowing me down as well, relative to that third player. But in a two-player game, everything I do to you is also speeding me up. So, um, you know... Cut throatedness is enhanced significantly, which is why Jen and I are so sensitive about it. Maybe more so than a lot of people who watch our show who play at higher player counts. Um, But yeah, I don't think there's anything implicitly wrong with area control. It's just maybe certain old fashioned approaches to area control don't necessarily translate as well. Because I'm looking at 40 to 50 games here that I think work great, they do it in a lot of different ways. And um, if you want to ask about specifics, You can follow up with another question. All righty. Next up. The remainder of your questions have to do with Marvel Champions. I like Marvel Champions. What are Jen's and my favorite heroes and aspects of Marvel Champions? Favorite villain encounter? Been loving Black Panther leadership lately. Um, And you might think, well, hey, that's something Jen should have asked. Jen's only played the game three times, and she likes it a lot, but I have played it uh, like nine or ten times because i played it a bunch with other people. I've played it solo a lot. Um, So Jen, I don't think she would have been able to answer this question. Um, uh my answer to the question is, having played all the characters, but not, uh, Doctor Strange or, or Black Widow, because they're not available here yet. They're available everywhere else in the world, but just not here. So leaving them out of the equation, although I suspect Black Widow will probably be my favorite from what I've read about her. Uh, boy. Well, I like them all, And unfortunately, I can't say Spider Man, even though he's my favorite comic book character of all time, because I think he's a good character. But you know, the generalists, the the all rounders, they're they're cool. You know, Captain America is cool, but I really like ones who do very specific things. So I would probably say, I would almost say Miss Marvel, because I really like that character's focus on the uh, the uh, alter ego. You know your your day job. That so much of her power comes from her family, not from her superhero friends or her her superpowers, but you know from her mother and her father and her friends, and that that's the source of her ability to succeed. I genuinely think that's beautiful, and it kind of chokes me up a little bit when I'm you know in the middle of playing with her. Um, and even if that makes her a bit more pigeonholed, she's not quite as flexible. Um, I I still just love that. I guess. Really, it's more on thematic reasons rather than uh, gameplay reasons, though. What are my thoughts on the upcoming campaign box for uh, Marvel Champions? Please! I just want it. I want it, my precious. Um, I can't wait for it, because it'll be an excuse to make Jen play it with me more, because, honey, there's this new thing. we got to play it together so I can film a run-through for it. Whee! I-, I-, I couldn't be more excited. I have to admit, I haven't really looked that much at it, because I know I'm going to get it, side unseen... But I, I couldn't tell you much about the particulars. I guess I'm most excited about the fact of campaign play that will spread across multiple games, and your your characters can level up and, until you finish the campaign. That's obviously the coolest thing. I mean, who are the characters in it? Oh, uh, Spider-Woman. Oh, and I'm really excited about Hawkeye, because I think that could be really cool, too. Because, well, I mean, although, gosh. Well, no, no. Spider-Woman's core thing about being able to mix two different, what are they called, disciplines? Aspects. Two different aspects in one. That sounds really cool, but I'll be honest, my least favorite thing in any of these sorts of games is actually trying to to um, construct decks and and strategize all the card combos. I'm still, at this point, even though I've got too many cards, and when I first got in the base box, I just said, hey, just one of every card. Now that there are too many to do that, I literally just, whatever aspect it is, I pick a bunch of cards randomly and just get whatever I get. And the, you know... Um, so Spider Woman is a cool idea, but I'm not interested in doing. Double. Although I guess it'll be interesting to even randomly create decks for her. Uh, but anyway, uh, do I think uh, Marvel Champions is the best heroes versus boss cooperative game? No, I think Aeon's End is better. I think uh, Aeon's End, even though don't get me wrong, I rate. Marvel Champions higher on my overall rankings list, but a big part of that is because of my deep, 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 deep love for Marvel Comics. So there's a huge nostalgia factor there going all the way back to my childhood. Um, but putting that aside, if I were just to be cold and calculated and just only examine these things based on the strength of their design, I do think Aeon's End is probably the best stronger design, the better game. And certainly, Aeon's End. Well, Aeon's End has been around longer. Um, so they have done so much crazy, imaginative, out-of-the-box bosses. I have fought almost all of them. I've played a lot more of Aeon's End than I have of Marvel Champions. And don't get me wrong, Marvel Champions does really cool, amazing... Oh, you asked, what was my favorite boss? That would easily, easily be um, Norman Osborn, Green Goblin, You know, them actually changing. I love that so much, because it's just such a crazy, unique idea. It's different than anything else, um, I mean they've all had interesting variations. Certainly, my least favorite is Wrecking Crew because, well, because I have to play it solo more than I would like. Um, and honestly, I don't think I don't think Marvel Champions is the best solo game. Gasp! Um, I, I think it's okay as solo, but it's so much better when played with another player. I mean, it's just it's hard to compare. But Aeon's End is is absolutely amazing. I think Aeon's End does the most interesting and creative and. Um, impressive, impressively designed hero versus boss elements of the uh, in the industry period. Okay. Uh, that was it for Josh. That was fun. Mario says... I don't know why I said it like that. Hey, it's you, Mario. Okay. You had this email saved as a draft for three months. It's time to send the questions. All right. They're very exciting. This has been building up. I've already said that Dump Drive and um, Roll for the Galaxy killed Race for the Galaxy because they were more streamlined. Then, I also said that New Frontiers is superior to Race, though I don't think that one is more streamlined nor better. Personally, view there, says Mario. Why do I feel each of them is better than Race? And what would I say to someone like me who still thinks Race for the Galaxy is the best one? And as a footnote... Here is my rating. Oh, you went and looked it up. Uh, Roll, jump, new frontiers, race no longer has rating. Yes, uh, race would still be a rating. It would be rated. Um, it would be rated lowest of them. I, the reason that was, I mean, I only keep, I only have ratings on games I actually have in my collection. Um, and race for the galaxy is great. Race for the galaxy is amazing. Here is why I think those other three games are superior to race. Two main reasons. One, words. Words instead of icons. I appreciate the ambition of Race for the Galaxy trying to be mostly, not completely, but mostly language independent. With the, you know, and, and, you know, trying to be, oh, look, at a glance. And I understand that if I played Race enough, I would get to the point where all the iconography is second nature and I wouldn't give it a second thought. Probably like yourself. I am not in a situation where that will ever be the case. Every time I ever went back and I played Race for the Galaxy, it took me um, a good amount of time to get myself reacquainted with everything, and the first part of the game was very uh, stuttery and stop and start. Jump Drive, Roll for the Galaxy, and um, uh, New Frontiers have all said, okay, yeah that was a mistake. Let's just actually put words on all the stuff so you don't have to... They still leave the icons there. And to be fair, sometimes in Race for the Galaxy, there are words. But most of the time, you just got to make do, and you have to kind of get to where you understand this alien language. So that's a big, big part of it. The other part is, I think all three of those games are better as a two-player game than Race. And don't get wrong, I think Race is a great two-player game. But um, the... Preferred way to make race two player is that um, what you you effectively have two players worth of action cards and you play them double and that is very cool and I'm not saying it's bad at all but when I do that when I play that way I feel like I'm playing a game and a half and it 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 doesn't feel as good as the uh, system for roll where hey let's just replicate a third player and roll a die so we can get that interplay of you know somebody else who you could try to piggyback off of I think that is so superior because, as you said, it's so much more streamlined. It's simple. It's—I mean, I—I I can still try to intuit what that die is going to do because I know probabilistically what it's likely to do, and I can make my plans around it. But it's just so nice and easy and clean, and it just flows. Jump Drive, of course, is basically a solo game where everybody's just running their own race, um, and I love it because it's—it's it's, you know—it's under fifteen minutes, and it's just so fast. And it's like, it's like Race for the Galaxy on steroids, because you get um, twice as much done in half the time, and I just love the velocity of that game. And then, um, why does New Frontiers uh, supplant Race? I mean, in a large part, it's kind of the closest to Race, in terms of its, its raw mechanisms. But like I talked about, I mean, you can go watch my final thoughts for New Frontiers. I mentioned this. New Frontiers is much more strategic than Race, because... You know, there's a a random setup to the game, but you know everything that's going to be available to you when you start, right from the get-go. In Race... It is, I mean, you literally are discovering things as things as you go through the game. You're like, oh my gosh, I drew this card. That changes everything. And that's great, but Race for the Galaxy is much more tactical. New Frontiers is much more strategic because, like Agricola, you are ma- or like in the year of the dragon, you are making plans from the first turn for your final turn of the game. And I personally find that more compelling. To a certain extent, you're doing that with Race, but you can't because you are so at the mercy of what you will find during explorations. And that is great, too. That gives its its own unique flavor, just not one that I enjoy as much. So that's why all three of those are superior. I should say, I've never played any of the expansions for Race, and I really would like to. And I really, really loved Race for the Galaxy, too. It's just there there was no reason to keep it because I would never play it as long as Roll. And now, Jump Drive and uh, New Frontiers are in our house. Okay, What are my thoughts about Caper, Yincey, and 1987 Channel Tunnel? Don't know if I've tried any of them yet. I have played one of those three. Um, I've never heard of Caper. I'm going to follow your link. Thank you, by the way, folks. He put links that I could click on in the email. It took me right there. Oh, that's so nice. Um, I don't know anything about Caper. I've seen this box art... And um, it's a two-player strategy game, which player recruits thieves, equips gear, tries to steal from popular places around Europe, plates across six-round, colorful, quirky design. I don't know why I've missed this. Uh, at some point, I've looked into it, and I've decided this is not a game for us. Because I don't even have it marked as subscribed or add to my collection thinking about it. So I, I don't remember why, but there was something about it. Maybe I watched this video from uh, Tiffany here. Uh, Stephen Tiffany... So I couldn't say anything about it. I'm sorry. I got nothing for you. I can't talk about the other two, though. Yinsi we have played. I will actually be doing a run-through for it this month. Because it was requested from a high-level Patreon backer. I'm like, okay. Or no, actually, no. It was requested by the person who won my entry in the latest Jack, Masel, Jack Vassel Memorial... A charity auction, where I auctioned away, hey, you can make me play any game you want. And the person who one said, I want you to film Yancy. So we're doing it. And we, we played it last month, and I ran out. I didn't have time to film it, so I'll film it soon. I think it's a brilliant design. I love the action selection mechanism. I love the interconnectedness between players and how we can use each other's stuff and benefit each other. I love all of that stuff. I love a game full of disasters that you can see coming, that you can prevent. Um, yeah, I like everything about it, except it's too long, it's too long, too long, too long. I mean, we're to the point where, you know, a three-plus-hour game, there's just almost nothing. that um, doesn't matter how good it is, we're, we're not going to stick it out. So I would love to see a 90-minute or, you know, a 60-90-minute version of Yincey, and that would be an ball potential top 10 of the year, maybe. And then the other one. Oh, uh, 1987. I so want to play this game. This is a game where uh, two players are working... I guess it's a cooperative game. I'm starting on the English side. You're starting on the European side. And we're both tunneling to the center of the table to actually make the tunnel. I love that idea. I just... they never sent me a review copy. If they had, I totally would have covered it. Because I'm just in love with it. But I never got a chance to play it. And as you probably know, if publishers don't send it to me, it's not going to get filmed, because I get I, have, I always have a, too much of a back uh, catalog of games that publishers have sent me. So yes, I could go out and buy it, but I would never have time to play it, because I've got too many games that I need to play. So sadly, it looks great, though. I really like the idea of it a lot. Okay. And I also, we really liked 1906 San Francisco, which was a prequel to it. I thought that was a good design, so this is probably, it's probably a good design, too. Moving along to Mario's, like I said, this is three months worth of questions. Have I tried the expansion for a railroad revolution? No. Why? They haven't sent it to me. Otherwise, I would have. In your perspective, it's such a good evolution of the base game. And you were interested in my opinion. What I have heard is that it saves the base game. That the base game has problems that I was not aware of, because I didn't play it enough to see you know, degenerate strategies that emerge or whatever, and that this addresses those, and I think that's great. And if What's Your Game ever sends me a copy, I will be happy to get it to the table and uh, do some video on it. But the same as those last three games. Although we didn't like Azul for two players... Actually, I thought Azul was great for two players. We didn't like it because it was too cutthroat. All right. Will you or are you interested in trying the other Azuls? Nope. Because I believe, from what little I've looked at them, they are just as cutthroat, and therefore we're not interested. Um, but I'm sure they are fantastic, because Azul is a brilliant design that deserves all the uh, critical and commercial success it's had. It is a, uh, super design, just not for us, sadly. And I suspect the other ones won't be either. Do all the games shown in my roundups get recorded for rundowns, run-throughs? I'm asking because I have a feeling I never saw some of them on your channel, although we have a glimpse of recordings during a roundup. Actually, I just filmed my April 2020 roundup yesterday. And I talked about this very topic. So, if you haven't yet, go check it out. I get about a third of the way in, and I stop and say, hey, let me tell you about how that works. And you, you can see it all. So you've probably already seen it by now, actually, because this was, again, it was three months ago. Um, all right. Long story short, up until now, up until starting my ninth year, when I did roundups, I would actually film little devoted five to 10 minute long snippets of gameplay, um, with no sound or anything that existed only to be in the background of the roundups. And I have now stopped doing that because it was so much work. So much work. Alrighty. Um, And it led to confusion, like this case in Mario, and people went off and tried to find run-throughs they couldn't find. Um, Now you don't have to watch it, although you probably already have. Uh, Challenge Mario gives me. From the video games I've worked on over the years, which would I think would be the best to adapt into a board game in three categories? Best as a solo game, easiest to do, and the most profitable? Um, I would say the answer to all three is the same, and it's really kind of a cheesy, unfair answer. It's obvious. It's The Sims. Why hasn't The Sims been... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they had Surely there is a Sims board game, right? How could there not be? Back to the board game geek. Search for The Sims. There's not! How can that be?! The Sims is so... I mean, there are other games that you could say are Sim-adjacent, like CV and Pursuit of Happiness, and those games prove... Or the, the, the Game of Life. Those games prove how amazing a Sims-style game would be. What would it be? I think to truly capture the nature of The Sims, you would have to not be in control... Of the little avatars that you are trying to build a little world for, and I could totally see that working in um in cardboard form with a simple AI system that determines what they're going to do and you know throws in some surprises. Uh, you know, I mean, gosh, look at the you know the uh, taking care of your pets in Dungeon Pets, and and don't tell, tell me you couldn't um, see that applied to Sims perfectly. And of course, building little houses and you know having a market where you can buy stuff and players competing to have to achieve objectives. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. I, I should say, I didn't work on the original Sims. I worked on the first version of the Sims that came out on console. That came out on PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox. And the interesting thing about that process, there were two design challenges. I was a designer. I wasn't a programmer. So my two design challenges on that game were, one, how to make it work for for a gamepad instead of a mouse and keyboard. And that was like the main thing I did. Um, you know, And then they continue to do that in every sequel. And it kind of, I think, helped define... Actually, no. I know. It hugely defined... It. I mean, nobody notices this. It was a major turning point in user interface for um, video games, because I had the idea of, hey, I'll use the D-pad to bring up four different mini-menus. And now, games do that all the time. So, um, yeah. I should have Trademarked that, or um, you know, gotten a patent on that, so I could get a little something for it. But um, all that aside, the other thing we had to do was. Originally, Sims on PC was a total sandbox. There was no sense of progression. There was no direction. It's just do whatever you want, play around, have experiments, just live this little virtual life, or watch these little virtual goldfish in human form, and and torture them, you know, take care of them, whatever you want. And I felt strongly that was not good enough. That the console would have to have a uh, some sense of objective, some sense of purpose. Players would it would be much more likely that players would want to be able to win. And so the big uh, element there was, you know, working on the design for an objective based system. And that's what I think you would need. I would. I would imagine the board game would have a randomly um, generated set of objectives. Probably some private ones. Probably some public ones. We have these uh, these Sims who are quasi predictable based on AI behavior decks that they draw cards from. And we build little houses. And um, you know, basically role play what we were doing when we were playing the real. That's just a no brainer. And I suspect it would be a monster hit. And I'm stunned it doesn't exist. So yeah, that, that's that's the easy one. The answer to all three. <laughs> Alrighty, please read this one first and answer only if you feel comfortable with it. I'm 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 going to answer it, I'm, I, whether I'm comfortable or not. Here we go. Have I ever felt uncomfortable endorsing what I thought was a great game on Kickstarter and then see the company messed up things after the campaign is finished? Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Problems delivering, not doing it, uh, flaw components. I was thinking on games like Thrash and Roll and... Thrash and Roll? Did Thrash and Roll not deliver? Oh man, I didn't know. I have to admit, most of the time, I don't even know what happens. And I'm surprised, years later... Because you know, I mean, after I've finished it, you know, Jen and I have played it a few times, and then I've filmed it, and then I've done whatever I do with the prototype, depending. And I feel I, I stop thinking about the game, and um, which is why you'll often see in my top tens of the years, uh, you know, people often ask, "Hey, what about this game?" You know, I just did my top ten update for 2019, and so people said, "What about?" Can't think of it. Architects of the West Kingdom. And I'm like, well, I don't have a final version of it, so I forgot about it. I, I literally stopped thinking about the games. And you know, sometimes the publishers send me them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they ask me, "Should they send them?" I usually say no because I—it's not like I need it. I've got other games. I got a film, so it, you can send it to me, and it'll just gather dust on the shelves like everything else. Um, so yeah, I'm—I sh- I tend not to know, but when I do discover it, I yeah, I, I feel terrible about it, and I'm—I'm I'm sorry to hear that Thrash and Roll had problems. I—I I didn't know Unbroken had problems either. I'm thinking of like like what does happen sometimes is people who are very frustrated and are having a hard time with whoever ran the Kickstarter, will sometimes, out of desperation, I don't think it's ever their first port of call, but when all else fails, they sometimes come to me. And they'll ask, Hey, we're having a really hard time contacting the maker of this. Could could you help us? And that has caused me so much grief. But I do it anyway. Like um, that folding table that was so cool. Um, the you know, uh, you know that folding gamer table. I love that. And apparently, the developers just they tried and they failed, and and so for a long time, people kept coming to me, and I was trying to be a go-between. This has also happened with me and some of the games from uh, Golden Egg Games. You know that Airlines game specifically, and I would try to be a go-between because. Up to a point, the publishers are a bit more likely to respond to me speaking on behalf of the players. But in most of these cases, it got to the point where they stopped responding to me as well. And then I, all I can do is just tell the people who... Again, I feel terrible about this because I'm partially... Not to blame, but I'm certainly involved because it was my enthusiasm and excitement for the game that got them, in many cases, to give up their money. And now they've effectively lost their money. And I wish that didn't happen. I mean, at the end of the day... It's not my responsibility. Caveat emptor. Buyer beware, and all that. But yeah, I I think it's awful, and I wish it didn't happen. And I'm really, I'm very glad that it happens very rarely. Um, Yeah. Anyway, there's your questions. Thanks, Mario. Let's move on to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Hey, Dan. Um, Your first question was about um, uh, me and Tom Bassell both putting out the, you know don't worry if you don't get all the games. There's so many other games. There's plenty. There's enough for everybody. You have made some very good points about this question. Except that's wrong. You didn't do a question. Anyway, though, I accidentally answered this one in the personal. I know you listened to the personal section, so you can keep on listening. You'll get that first one. So then you had more questions. And I I skipped the other game questions, but I'll come back to them. Alrighty, um, right. What are my top 10 lazy gameplay mechanisms? Your, Dan's number one move X, roll a bunch of dice, you hit on a five. Uh, move X, roll a bunch of dice, you hit on a five. Right. Um, you know, that's going to be, yes. Roll to resolve is, as far as I'm concerned, at this point, didn't used to be the case, but at this point, it has got to be the laziest game design mechanism there is. Even more so than roll to move. I have been more impressed by some designs that use roll-to-move in interesting and clever ways than I have by most roll, dice, and, and skill check. It, 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 it's just, it just shows... I mean, there are so many cool and interesting things. So many designers have done so many amazing things with, with the idea of using dice... To see, oh look, you've got to roll five dice and you got to get at least three of them with a five or a six, or you know they're all the versions of the same thing and they're all boring. Um, how could anybody do a simple thing after they played um, Legends of Andor, which also has roll resolve, but they had that really cool thing where you 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 have a group of dice and you roll the dice one at a time, and every time you roll, you have to make a decision. Oh. I got a three. Well, you know what? I'm going to re-roll. I have th- two more re-rolls, Yahtzee style. I'm going to try to get a better one. <gasps> I got a four. What are the chances I get a five or six? Should I stay on that? And then suddenly Roll to Resolve becomes really cool and dramatic and exciting and fresh and different. And how can anybody go back to just doing the same old stuff? And yet, publishers do it all the time. So I agree with you on that. Totally. Um, you wanted five. You're a monster, Dan. You are a monster. Uh... Oh, no, no. You said my top X. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. Well, my second one is stealing stuff. And, I mean, yeah. Granted, I just don't like it. I don't want to steal your stuff. But, I mean, I'm not talking about just stealing in general as a concept, but rather a game that has cards that you get, and you get to do special powers, and, you know, there are little events that you can make happen. The cards where, oh, steal lumber from an opponent. Steal three bucks from an opponent. Jeez Louise, talk about such a boring, pedestrian, prehistoric means of engendering interaction between players. Tell me you can't come up with something better, designers. Of course you can. I did a whole top 10 of interesting ways to have interaction between players that isn't just, oh, look, I steal your stuff, or I smash your thing." fine if that's what you want to do, if you think that's fun. But even within the realm of doing that, there are more interesting ways to go about it. So that's certainly my number two laziest thing, which is synonymous for things I just don't like in games. And um, I've given you my top two, because I, I, if I thought about longer, I could probably come up with some more. But honestly, I don't like being negative. I know it's hard for you to believe, Dan, because you bring out the negative in me. Um, but uh, Dan, I got to say, by the way, um, this was a great email. Like I said, I already addressed your first one later on. Spoiler alert, I largely agreed. I thought it was a good point, but I did have some counterpoints. Your personal questions, which were all very interesting, were all very long, and they were all singularly missing questions. So I'm just warning you now... The rest of them will come, and you're gonna hear me later on. Cause remember, I feel I recorded this out of order. When I get to it later, it's just a reminder. Sorry, I didn't get to them, but I I, I you know keep sending emails. But just try to make them a little bit more question focused, cause that really helps me in this actual Q and A format that I'm in. Anyway, though, moving along. Mario is back. Mario, he, he literally wrote, "I'm back in all caps." He has one more question. Mario's been playing Transatlantic, and he put a link, but I don't need it, cause I have played and I really dig Transatlantic. He's been playing it online on Utah. All right. Um, Why do I think Transatlantic flew under the radar of most gamers and only has a 7.1 on BGG? Uh, He remembers Paul Grogan complained a lot about the rulebook, which I remember that, and I didn't think... I didn't understand why. I thought the rulebook was fine, for the most part. Do I think it was something else? You know, uh, you know I have my final thoughts. After two years, did my perspective of the game change? Sadly, no, it hasn't, because after I film my run-throughs, um, they get basically immortalized in amber because, as I said earlier, I don't get to replay the games. And I think... Did I talk about... Well, at the time, I don't think... I, 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 I know exactly why it's... Under- and by the way, 7.1 on Board game Geek is really good. That is a very good score. So I I would say it has a a nice high score. Actually, let's go ahead and follow your link. What is its standing on BoardGameGeek? What is its rating? It is currently rated the number um, 1,289th best game in all of board gaming. That's actually really good for BoardGameGeek. Being in the top 5,000, considering there's hundreds of thousands of games in this... uh, catalog, that's actually pretty good. I would say it has been treated very well by the ratings on BoardGameGeek. But you're right. It came and went, and that's a real shame because it really is such a labor of love for Matt Gertz. I have talked to him a few times about it. i played early prototypes, and I know how much he loves this subject matter. And it was a love letter from him to the industry. And yeah, it's just been forgotten. But the answer is very easy. It is... Basically, a re-engineering or a re-jiggering of the core gameplay mechanisms of Concordia. And Concordia is hugely popular. And most people are actually pretty price-sensitive about, Con- let see, Concordia, about buying games. I mean, they don't necessarily want to buy tons and tons of games. Uh, right, here we go. Concordia, God, can I not spell Concordia? C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A. R D A A. I'm looking up Concordia standing on Board Game Geek. Concordia comes in on Board Game Geek as the number 17 of all time. And so people considering getting transatlantic are saying, well, you know, that's number 1200. And Concordia, from the same designer that is. Sixty percent the same game, uh, you know the the card mechanisms and a lot of the actual card functions. But you know the game itself, it's not a you know a route area dominance thing. It's a it's an engine building uh, industry game. But hey, the actions I do are largely the same. So if I'm going to get one of them, I should get the game ranked number seventeen of all time instead of number twelve hundred of all time. It's it's a victim of Concordia. It's as simple as that. Uh, I'm 100% positive. That is the explanation. There are other reasons, of course. But Concordia... And by the time Concordia came out, it already had several expansions. It was very well established. Transatlantic never had a chance, quite frankly. Um, Transatlantic, for it to be successful, would have had to differentiate itself more from Concordia and um, not be so close as to draw comparisons. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I drew comparisons, too, because I knew that's what everybody would ask me. Why should I get Transatlantic if I already own Concordia? And I, th- I would like to think I made an, a good argument for why. But, yeah. It's, it's a victim. Matt Gertz was a victim of his own success there. It's interesting. For the longest time... Um, Transatlantic was a radically different game. It was a Rondell game. It was um, not a hand management. And ultimately, for his final iteration, he said, you know what? This Concordia thing works really well. I'm going to transplant that over here. And that's when the game really sang, and it came to life, and he ultimately was able to finish it. But it's also when he put a nail in its coffin, sadly. Because it is a great game. Fantastic. Okay, so... Uh, moving on to... Steven... Wonders, when Foreign him came out, Stephen wasn't drawn to it for some reason. Lately, he's heard and read enough positive things, he wants to give it a try. He knows Jen and I liked it. I was wondering, um, what Feld game do I feel it is most similar to? Hmm. Most similar to. Sorry, I'm taking a drink of water. Because I've been talking for, what, how many hours? Now? Oh, I'm afraid to look. I'm afraid to look. I've been talking for three hours straight. Wee! And uh, that's after doing uh, that Top Ten yesterday. So my throat, I'm really pushing myself. Anyway, though. Sorry. I'm I'm going off into the weeds. I should really do this stuff first so the Jen can help me uh, keep me on track for the second half. Oh, dear. Where was it? Okay. Yes. What is it like? That's a good question. I'm going to throw you for a loop. And I'm going to say it's more like uh, a Kramer and Kiesling game. Like, um... Oh, their Roman game. Because the thing is, you know, it, it, all Steffenfeld games, the core of them, is a really big, interesting clockwork mecha a series of mechanisms that all can join together in really interesting ways. Generally, two or three little mini-games inside of game, tied together with the game. So in that regard, you could probably most readily draw comparisons to, uh... Trajan. Trajan does that, and so does Foreign uh, Trajanum. Uh, ne- putting aside the fact that they're the same setting and the same, almost the exact same title, these are both a collection of separate little mini games all pulled together by a central mechanism. In Trajan, it's the Moncala. Here, it is the uh, the simple card play stuff. Uh, but that simple card play feels more like, and I cannot remember the name of the game from Kramer and Kiesling, and this is driving me nuts. But it wasn't Foreign Trajan, but it was something like. So I'm going to go on ahead and look up games by Kramer. I'm going to go back to advanced search. P- uh, Porta Negra. I don't have to look. Porta Negra. The um, Foreign Trajanum is a combination of Porta Negra and Trajan. That is what the game is. I don't know if that helps you or not, but that was your question. Okay. Next question. You've heard about uh, Feld's new game for 2020, Bonfire, which looks like it's based around a cool new action selection mechanism, one of Feld's strengths. And there's also Castles of Tuscany, which is very easy to fi- eager to find out more, as it's clearly related to Burgundy. But how? Oh, and your question was, have I heard of them? Yes, I've heard of both of them. Um, I'm very excited about both of them. I have not, uh, you know, other than acknowledging the existence of them and ensuring that they will be gotten, no matter what, you know, if the publishers wouldn't send these to me, these would be ones I'd break my rule, and I would go on ahead. You know, I will. First of all, I used to send emails to publishers all the time saying, Hey, my name is uh, Richard Ham. I film a show Rado runs through. Uh, do you send out review copies? Because I'd really love to cover X. I used to do that all the time. A couple of years ago, I pretty much stopped doing that. Because I get too many games, I don't need to be soliciting more games. And that's why, as I've mentioned um, at other points in this podcast although you may not have heard them yet, I don't really remember, or maybe I have, because it's all blurring together. That is why I'm to the point where, you know what? If a publisher isn't going to send it to me, too bad. I'm, I'm just not going to cover it. And um, I am not necessarily going to go seek out the publisher. Because I know, pretty much at this point, I'm a big enough show that any publisher that I asked would send me a review copy. But I get enough stuff that I just don't ask anymore. There are a few games, if they don't send it to me, I will ask. And anything from Steffen Feld, I will ask. Um, so they are still rule breakers for me, and and actually, I I, I suspect I probably will have to ask for both of them because surely, uh, they're coming from Robinsberger, is that right? I'm not sure. I actually I really haven't paid attention. All I need to know is when do they become available? Um, and at that point, I will send an email, hat in hand, saying, "Please, sir, may I have some more? I film the show. Would you like me to cover your games? Um, uh, because these ones I need to play, must play. All right." Um, and by the way, you can always tell what games those are, because if you go to my wish list on BoardGameGeek, uh, anything that I've rated a 1 or a 2, certainly anything that's rated a 1, and probably anything that's rated a 2, well, no, that's... I haven't ever made this a hard and fast roll. Anything that I've rated a 3, yeah, I'd love to play it, but I'm not necessarily going to seek it out. 1s, I will get. Or no, okay, that's how, that's how I break it down. 3s, I'd really like to play it, but I'm not going to seek it out. 2s... Yeah, okay, if they're not gonna send to me, I might ask. Ones, oh, if you're not gonna send to me, I'll buy it myself. Um, you know, that would be a way that I think I could quantify how I rate stuff in my wish list. And fours, well, those are I don't know if I want to play this or not. Okay. Then we move on to Mario. Mario, is this the same? Yes, it is, strike three. Okay. Uh uh-huh. boy, Mario, you had a lot of questions in your heart and soul. Let's go you were watching my rundown for Dreams of Tomorrow. Uh, Did I ever end up getting a final version of it with some time distance now? My rundown is from uh, October of 2018. How do I think the game stands? He never sent me a review. He never sent me a final copy. So, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, wait. No, 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 no. Wait, which one is this one? This is... Yes. This is that cool... Collect discs and then use discs to sculpt your little dreams and then re-sculpt them and change. Yeah, that was a really cool game. Uh, I think I got an email from him not too long ago saying, good news! We're going to send you a copy. So I haven't seen it yet, though. I mean, I was told like four or five months ago I was going to get sent a copy of Tang Garden. I'm like, oh, cool, great. Uh, I'll I'll film it. And they never have, and Tang Garden is not a game I rate high enough that I'm actually going to write back and say, hey, dude, where's Tang Garden? If they don't want to send it to me, they don't. If Dream of Tomorrow, though, yeah. I would love to give that one a go again. Because that that was an interesting one. I didn't get to play that one with Jen. Uh, At that point, when it came in, I think Jen was on the road, and so I ended up playing with Gordon Kaleha, who is a friend of mine in Malta, who is a professor of game design, and who is the... uh, designer of Vigil- uh, Not Vigilance. Vengeance. And is uh, the head honcho of Mighty Boards. And so he and I played it. And uh, we both had a great time. And I was always very sad, because I figured Jen would really like it too, but we never got a chance. So that one I'm actually looking forward to. I have a reason. See, even... Often, when the publisher does send a game out and it ends up on my shelf, well, one, that means it could potentially be considered for, you know, game of the year list at the end of the year, but it means I'll probably have to play it again, but I'll have a reason to play it. I need to have a reason to play a game. And one reason is, you know what, this might be in my top 10 of the year. Oh, look, I've got it, I'll play it. Another reason is, obviously, I need to film a video for it. And another reason, although it's very rare, but there's a few games out there that it happens, oh, you know what, when I played the prototype of this, I played it with somebody other than Jen, I'd really love to share this with her. And Dreams of Tomorrow, I hope he sends it, because I'd love to get a go again. About prototypes, says Mario... Do I have to print out anything to to test prototype? Do publishers send me a pack with all the cards, boards necessary? And do you use tokens from other games? Or do they send you a box with everything you need to play the game? All three of those. It varies from publisher to publisher, from game to game. More and more... Publishers are really upping their games because they realize how important these videos of their prototypes are. So they are realizing, I mean, you go back and look at some of the old prototypes I used to cover. Oh my gosh, so ugly, so very ugly. These days, it's rare and rare to see a really ugly prototype. And there are cottage industries in, in Europe and America where, you know, there are businesses that print out near retail quality copies of prototypes. So I think that's these days, that's the norm. Um, prototypes that everything's in the box, even the box looks really great, and um, you know, you'd know you have to actually physically touch these things to realize, oh, that's not quite the same quality finish that I would expect from a, a retail copy. But it's still not at all unusual. I mean, heck, um, I'm going to be filming a run-through for uh, Maharaja this month, and they sent me... they didn't send me any of the things. They didn't... They, you know, the game has dials. And they didn't actually send me the little snappy plastic things to hold the dials together. And so I'm going to have to try and MacGyver something like that to work. I'm like, how, what the? how could you not do that? Um, and they didn't... The, uh, the game, you, you put a lot of little shrines all over the place, and they didn't send me any cubes. So I, the most useful game I own... Is Macau because Macau, if I recall comes with like 50 cubes of like eight different colors or something like that. The number of times you have seen my old trusty copy of Macau's cubes in other prototypes, I couldn't even tell you. Dozens of games have been saved by Macau because um, I needed some cubes. So it's a little bit of everything, it runs the gamut. And yes, sometimes, actually, if I have to print something out, it's usually because they've sent me the prototype early like sometimes even a few months early. I mean, I've even had prototypes that have gotten to me like a half a year early. And um, by the time... And you know, I'm like, you don't have to do that because I'm not even going to look at this thing until two or three weeks before you launch. And um, if, they, if I get it really early, it's not at all uncommon. Then when I finally get around to it, they say, oh, we need to send you out some new components. But they won't get there in time. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just send me the PDFs and I'll print them out. So that happens sometimes too. Okay. Ben... Ben says, you're guessing people will have questions about my new minion. And here are Ben's. Uh, so far, Ben, no, but you're the first person to ask any questions. You just watched uh, Shay's first run-through on the channel, A Call to Adventure. Oh, in case people don't know. Hey, man, I could have made... Oh, man, I am so dumb. Remember how at the beginning of this, I was saying, I'm not really going to do anything special for my f- my fifth year anniversary of doing this podcast. You know what I should have done? I should have had Shay Parker, the new contributor to Rado Runs Through, appear, and I could have done an interview with him and talked to him about his background and who he is. And oh my god, that was so dumb! Why didn't I do that? I am so dumb. Anyway, uh, perhaps this will fill in. Uh, because you just watched his first run-through. Folks, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch on my channel my run-through for Call to Adventure, because it wasn't filmed by me. It was filmed by Shay Parker, and he did a great job. Uh, he's working on his next one right now for a game that's going live on Kickstarter next week called Sea of Legends. I just saw his video of that. I gave him some feedback. He's going to refilm a couple of things. He's doing amazing. Anyway, back to Ben. You just watched his run-through of Call to Adventure and enjoyed it. To what extent will Shay be involved in the channel? Here's the deal. Here's the whole deal. I have a friend named Andy, um, who I chat with every once in a while. He has been after me for years, for years now, to start taking Roto Runs Through more seriously, treat it like a business, um, instead of just you know, kind of my slapdash... Um, you know, and, and very, um, very reticent approach to, um, you, know, uh, you, know, uh, you know, trying to let have it grow and stuff like that. I mean, Roto-Runster's popularity has grown in spite of me. I have not done any of the things I'm supposed to do. I have never told anybody, be sure to like and subscribe or any of that stuff. I very only um, regret, you know. I've I, I very hesitantly turned on ads, and I very hesitantly started accepting payment for doing previews of Kickstarter campaigns. Um, and you know, and some of those things were Andy shouting at me over Skype. You should do okay, fine. Eventually, uh, earlier this year, I said to Andy, "Hey, you know what, Andy? You want you want runs through to be more. You do it." You take over, become my channel manager, and he said, "Okay, boom, boom," and he's off. And then, and within a week, he brings me Shay and says, "This guy is going to be great. I've watched his videos. You know, I, I think he could be. He doesn't do what you do, but I think he could be a great fit. He could really fit your style, um, and he could be the guy who covers games that you wouldn't cover, and that could broaden your scope for the channel." Like, yeah, I guess all that's true. And i like, well, I don't know if I want to do this, because I don't want to do any of it. I just, want to, I just want to keep it as simple as possible. But Andy, or Andrew, as he prefers... His friends call him Andy, but he, prefer- he, he, he puts himself out there as Andrew. Um, you know, Andrew did the handshake, and so Shay and I chatted, and I, and I really liked him. And I watched some of his videos, and his videos are fantastic. The thing that really convinced me that Shay was going to be a good fit was he did a short series of How to Teach Games... And he did such a great job on that, and the lessons and you know, the messages he had, those were perfect. I mean, he was like channeling me, and I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And so um, we, uh, you know, and and so uh, we said, hey, let's do it. And Shay said, well, you know. Um, let me do this A Call to Adventure. I think it'd be really great. And, I'm, and I was really happy, because I have been asked many times over the years to, do call for, to cover Call for Adventure. And I was genuinely interested, because I like the narrative stuff, but I didn't like the role to resolve, as mentioned earlier. Although, to be fair, this game does more interesting stuff with role to resolve than most. It actually does some pretty cool stuff. Shay actually convinced me about Call to Adventure that it's worth probably checking out someday. But anyway... Um, I was so happy he suggested I'm like, yes, this would be perfect. Cause this is the whole point. Now, Call to Adventure will be covered on my channel. This will be of great value to my viewers, and I didn't have to lift a finger. Um, and it's been great. Actually, to be fair, I did lift a finger. I um, you know, he did his first run through, which was like 30 minutes long, and I gave him an hour and a half of feedback, but then he did a second one, and it was what the one you saw, and it was almost perfect. I mean, I still have a couple little tweaks, but I'm just getting really persnickety. I just last night watched his Sea of Legends. I thought that was great. Wait till you see Sea of Legends. Wow. I mean, this guy, if he keeps up, he is going to supplant me, um, because I think he does some things better than I do. But anyway, pop um, pop including... Uh, he doesn't make nearly as many goofs as I do. He's def- definitely less scatterbrained than me. So, um, the plan for him... Well, first of all, the pl- um, remember, this is all coming back to Andy saying, you should help Roto Runs to Grow. And here's the thing. I'm sure you've heard me say this before a million times. I say no to nine out of every ten games that I am asked to cover for Kickstarter previews. And, you know, I, I, I do paid previews. I have to, because frickin' healthcare is so expensive in this country. When we realized how much this was going to cost, and how much more we were going to be paying in taxes, because we weren't living overseas, we realized I had to start, because uh, otherwise I would have to quit doing Roto Runs Through and go back to the video game industry if I wanted to live in America and care for my mom, who was living with us. There was just no getting around it. We had to do it. So, um, and meanwhile, Andy said, like, yes, do more. And I was like, uh, anyway, um, so... Uh, you know, I everybody's heard me say I turned down nine out of ten, probably at least three or four, maybe even five or six of those nine. I turned down even though they look like they're perfectly good games. They're just ones I wouldn't care to play, and that's where Shay can come in. Shay. Can potentially cover these other ones and somebody else that Andy is talking to. And there's a potential that Andy's gonna bring another contributor in who is fantastic. I'm not gonna reveal yet because we're waiting to see how it all works out, but I, I've got a good feeling, just like I had a good feeling about Shay. I think it'll work great. Um, so that means, well, it's better for everybody. Um, you know, one, Shay can uh, potentially try to make a living out of this because. You know, Shay's a young guy living in Southern California, and um, you know, trying to be a board game YouTuber doesn't make ends meet. But being on my channel and doing Kickstarter previews can really help with your bottom line. So, Shay is benefiting covering games he wouldn't get to cover otherwise because he's on a channel that has 100,000 subscribers instead of a channel that has 15,000. Although, make no mistake, uh, Shay was doing great. 15,000 subscribers to a YouTube channel, that's a big deal. Um, So, anyway, so he can cover that kind of stuff, but it's not just that he'll start covering things that feature you know player conflict or whatever, because he he's a much more omnivorous gamer than me. I'm really narrow in my choices, whereas he he likes everything. he's more like Tom Bassell in that regard, so I just I am just really happy that more of a wider range of stuff is going to be present on my channel and I think that's good for everybody. Even for people who don't who know they only want to uh, who have decided my taste is like Rados. I have a lot of viewers like this. Um, and that's fine. Well, they just won't necessarily be so attracted to Shay's. But Shay likes games I do too. And I'll be honest, sometimes I say no to games cuz I just don't have the time. That was true for Everdell. I could have covered Everdell when it was on Kickstarter and I said no because of that I did not have the time. Shay could have done it. And so, that means it's helping more viewers. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of the thinking. We'll see how things evolve. Uh, but I'm really excited. I, I, mean, I, I mean, he's so knocked it out of the park. All right. Is he only going to be exclusively run-throughs of the games, or is he going to provide more than that? Do you see him getting involved in the monthly podcast? <laughs> um, either in his own segment or together with you, or we'll be doing um, top tens. Um, uh, probably not. Maybe anything's possible. The thing is... Um, it's, it's, it's really, uh, you know, the, the thing is by doing paid previews, he's getting paid. He's getting paid because, you know, if he's not getting paid to do these videos, he should really be doing videos on his own channel and helping to grow that. If he's slumming on my channel, yes, he's in it. You know, he's indirectly helping his own channel because you know, just you know, more people are aware of him. More people, oh, I want to see more. Look, there's this whole thing. They subscribe, but he'd be better off putting videos on his own channel. So if nothing else, he can get some ad revenue and stuff like that out of it. So right now, the main focus is on um, you know picking up kickstarters. Because I don't know that I necessarily want to pay him to come and do podcast co-hosting or top 10 co-hosting or stuff like that. And I don't think it makes sense for him to do it for free. Because, But all that said, nothing is written in stone. And I really like him. He's really sharp. And um, we'll see how things progress, is all I can say. I you know and I know you can barely believe Andy is always pushing me do more do more do more I'm always pushing no I don't want to do any anymore so I you know I've got this kind of you know Andy is both the good and the bad devil on my shoulders at the same time or Andrew I'm sorry uh, so we'll see how things evolve uh, like I said year nine um, is is a very interesting so, time I don't know that um, I don't know why Alexa thought I said her name um, anyway though. <laughs> Right. I don't know if you could hear that. Uh, anyway. Sure Alexa, that. stop. Ugh. She's really great at turning on and off lights. Uh, all right. Um, so, how are, how are we determining... Oh, you have a lot of questions about Shay. What? I mean, I, I think I'm kind of answering these as I go. What games Shay will run through besides games that aren't in? Will there be a feature request for him to do run through similar to what you have? Yeah, I, I think all that stuff is great, um, I think there's a lot of games out there that I feel fundamentally terrible that I haven't been covered, and I just don't have time to do it because I've got my obligations for stuff I do have to cover. I think there's a lot of potential. I think it all comes back to, um, you know... I I I don't think it makes sense for him to work for free for me, and I'm not bringing in a quarter of a million dollars like Tom Vassil is uh, through Kickstarter. I'm not bringing in that much money on Patreon. So right now the Kickstarters they make sense because the I'm just a conduit and the publishers are paying him and everybody's winning. I have to decide if I want to start paying him cash, and that's a big thing because we kind of need that cash to pay for the stuff I was talking about. So I'm trying to figure that out now. I have thought about, you know, trying to make him stretch goal elements in, in the Patreon. But I, I mean, but I guess back to where I started. I hate asking for money. I don't mind maybe asking for somebody else. I don't know. It's all so new. And I really didn't want to commit to any of it until he had actually done some run throughs, because this has been in the works for a couple of months. And, you know, it's all Call to Adventure, only. it was only done like two days, or the day before I made it live. So this is all still breaking news. But I think it's super exciting. And, man, when you see his Sea of Legends video next week, um, well, I. I, I, You know, the better he gets, the more I want to push. is all I can say at this point. All right, so Ben then says, Knowing you, I'm assuming you're mostly going to play it by ear and see what happens. But I was wondering if you had any concrete plans for the future. Ultimately, I think having someone assist in run-throughs helps everybody all around. Helps prevent burnout on your end. Yeah, see, here's the thing. I would certainly love to get into the situation... If the audience accepts it, and I know there's always going to be a portion of the audience that will never accept it. But you know, the more they see of him, and the more they see, he really is capturing the spirit of what I do so well. Did I mention he's an actor? You can look him up on IMDb. Um, you can see his uh, his uh, headshots and all of that. Um, I, I really do. I would like to see. I can imagine. I mean, we're talking years uh, of people getting used to him and. You know, if the audience accepts it, him doing more and me doing less because I'm old and I'm tired. And I think you know me, Ben. So, but that's way off in the future. And certainly, the big question is when do Jen and I move back to Europe? Because that will happen. And when that happens, our cost of living will drop precipitously. And then some of the decisions I've had to make about how to run this channel, uh, as I mentioned earlier, can radically change. And that could be a very good thing for Shay. I don't know. Time will tell. But I, all I have to say right now is I'm so happy. And, and Andy, I mean, I was really—he's got a great eye. I mean, it's no no surprise. He actually used to work in um, television for years as uh, as a line producer and stuff like that. So it's no surprise that Andy was very good at spotting talent. Um, and yeah, Shay's a huge talent. I'm super happy to have him on board. All righty. Uh, moving along, we have Darren. Uh, unless there's anything else, I think that was it for Ben. Yes. Okay, Darren says, Do I count Nightmares of Atmospheres VHS as an early digital integration in board games? Oh, that is interesting. I've never actually played any of those. I'm I'm aware of them, though. I understand. Strictly speaking, if you want to get pedantic, I would say yes, because if for no other reason, your VCR has a digital clock on it. But no, I don't think so. Because... I think the, the true things that make digital app-based integration into board games is the apps are, if, a, if, if an app is truly doing nothing then other than replicating an event deck that you draw, then it really serves no purpose. It's fine, I don't mind it, but that's not interesting to me. And so apps really need to do more; they need to streamline at the very least they need to streamline the burdensome elements um or you know automate the elements that are boring, like alchemists, where uh, if the app was not being the uh computer that checks your components, a human player would have to do it, and they'd be miserable um so As as I understand them, those old um, VHS... You know, not just those ones. Hey, there was the Star Trek one. There were all kinds of them. And um, there's a Monopoly one, right? I don't think they really count. Maybe some of the DVD ones, because I think they had chapter skipping. I don't really know enough about them to say, though. Um, But, yeah, strictly speaking, I suppose they are. But I, I think that defeats the purpose, and it doesn't adhere to the spirit of what makes app integration in board games so exciting. Uh, making them smart. Okay. Michael wonders, uh, or Michael says, he's having to choose between Last Will and Prodigals Club. It looks like more people prefer Prodigals, but I got rid of my copy and kept Last Will, which I rate an 8.5. Not sure what I'd rate Prodigals. Is there a reason I prefer Last Will? Does Jen have a preference? I think Jen would be fine either way. I don't think... I, I think Jen, she liked Prodigals. We both really liked Prodigals. Prodigals was great. Why did I get rid of prodigals and hold on to last will? Uh, Let me think about it. Wasn't that the thing that, mm, oh yeah, that you could actually, prodigals, you could actually bring last will and you could combine the two. That was actually really cool. I never actually had a chance to do that, unfortunately. I really like the idea of it. I think, oh, you know what it was? Prodigals has you working on three different elements of your layabout life. You're trying to pursue, what was it, politics and finance and like your personal life, right? I think that's... And politics was one of them. And your personal life, i.e. everything that Last Will was, were two of the three things you were focusing on. And then there was a third thing. Although you could choose to only pick two. You could pick, oh, I'm only doing the finance and the politics, or I'm only doing... you Or whatever. And I think I filmed it showing all three at once. Although maybe even the game recommended only two. But here's the thing. Because Prodigal's Club has you cast your attention wider and focus on more things at the same time, that arguably makes it a richer game with more things going on, a more complex game, but it abstracts your life a little bit. And I think that was my problem. Because one of the cool, wonderful things, above all else, about Last Will is the stories that, that, um, uh, that come out of play because there's so much attention to small details. You know, the name of your horse and um, what you did last Tuesday night. Whereas when you play Prodigal's Club, you're thinking more about Right, what's going on in my life? What life goals am I setting for myself? And that's all cool and that's fine. But Jen and I, when we found when we played it, we weren't quite so compelled to role play as much because we were doing macro uh, macro events instead of micro events and. I think that is, it, it was just kind of like a narrative preference, and we found it more engaging to focus on, oh, I went on a vacation, and here's all the stuff I did while I went on my cruise, and here's the girl I met, and stuff like that. Um, so it, it had more of that personal touch, and uh, whereas Prodigal's Club, I think, is probably a richer and more engrossing overall game, but it's not quite so evocative. So that's probably why I chose it. But this is so many years ago, I don't remember for sure. But that's my dim feeling. That I ultimately decided, well, you know, and it was probably, I was, once again, I was at my limit on how many games I could put on my shelves. I'm like, what do I get rid of? i got to get rid of something. It gets back to that whole Transatlantic Concordia. Yes, I could keep both of these because they're both great, even if they're 50% the same. They're so different as well. But I've only got so much shelf space. And if I'm only going to keep one of them, I should keep this. And I think that's what happened with Prodigal's Club. Alrighty, next up, Michael says, I need some simple, solitary games. And by simple, I mean not a lot of setup, or tear down or rules overhead. I like Friday. I liked owner'im, but ended up getting rid of it because of the weird theme. Any suggestion for quick solo games like Friday? Dice-based games would be fine, too. Did you know, Michael, that I did a top 10 solo games? And did you know, Michael that last year, I believe it was the month of July, every game I mentioned in my roundup, I evaluated from a solo perspective. Might I suggest, Michael, you check those out. Um, um, because my, my standard go to answer here is going to be hey, you know what? Better than asking me to try to come up with something off the top of my head, which I will fail to do, you're better off. Um, go check out some of these lists I did. And barring that, go to faq.rotto.com number six, and you will find a link that will give you a better answer than I could ever give you. All that said, I will give you one answer. And I'm going to be cruel because it's going to be a game you can't get. SOS Titanic is the bomb. It is exactly what you're looking for. And it's crazy, crazy out of print. And it's very hard to get. And let's find out how much you have to pay for a copy of SOS Titanic. Now, SOS Titanic going to the Board Game Geek Marketplace. Except I can't spell SOS Titanic. Trying this again. There it is. Well, I don't know what I spelled before. Scrolling down and going to the market. Going to the market. Oh, well, you could pay $85 for it, or $60 US for it, or €35, Euros, but it's a German edition. And I think... Was there text on the cards? I think there wasn't any text on the cards, was there? I think that German edition for €35 Euros might be worth seeking out. Yeah. Did the special power cards have... You know what? No, I think it's language independent. Dude, get on BoardGameGeek before anybody else hears this podcast and get that 35 euro copy of SOS Titanic. I didn't think there'd be one. And I don't know that it's worth $85. But, um, oh, wait, oh, yes, there is text on them, but you don't need it. You, um, because the, the text is backed up by iconographic represents, representations of what the special powers are. SOS Titanic is fantastic. It would be my number one recommendation for that. Um, if you could get it. And it seems like maybe for a very short window, you can. I suggest seeking it out. Um, any, any thoughts about how seriously this COVID-19 pandemic will be affecting gaming in the year 2020? Obviously, there won't be the usual conventions. Shipping is problematic. I haven't actually found that to be the case. Uh, we're getting stuff shipped to us all the time, as I discussed earlier in our protocols. Um, I'm interested in your perspective of it and when you think things will normalize and perhaps the very different question of when they should. Um I'm no I, I, I'm no expert in this field at all. I don't know anything anybody else doesn't know. Here's my gut feeling. You can't shut down an entire worldwide economy for weeks at a time and then turn it back on and everything will go back to normal. We are, I suspect, going to, by the end of this year, be in the uh, throes of something that rivals the Great Depression. I, I hate to say it. I hate to be a bummer. And I certainly hope I'm wrong. But there are key steps that our government could be taking right now, or all governments around the world could be taking right now, to, um, to, to stop it. And our government is not doing it. And, um, well, you know me. I'm an Andrew Yang fan. I don't think it's a big surprise what I think is the solution. And we need to be doing it. And it seems like there's not the political will to do it. And uh, so, yeah. Within the confines of that, if in fact that's the case, it's going to affect the board game industry because the majority of board game publishers will go out of business. That's a very real likelihood because very few of them are doing any better than just you know living month to month, robbing Peter to pay Paul, using the proceeds from this Kickstarter to fund the development for the next Kickstarter. You know uh, because. If you want to get rich in board games, if you want to, let's say, if you want to make a million dollars in board games, start with two million. You know, it's just, yes, it's it's a thriving industry, more so. And yes, sure, um, Frost Haven just made what fourteen million dollars, the second biggest Kickstarter in history. But you know what? Here's the thing. Here's my suspicion. I this is not ba- um, borne out on anything other than just a possible explanation for what we've been seeing over the last couple of months and uh, considering the fact that there are millions of people out there hurting and hurting so bad you know not everybody can um not everybody can get um unemployment not everybody uh can afford to not work not everybody makes youtube videos as a living and sells glass and so the fact that there are millions of people who are in super dire straits, and yet I, over the last few months, have not seen any appreciable drop-off in the amount of backing the Kickstarter games that I am previewing are getting, means one of two things. And the main thing I think it means is, it means that the board game hobby is largely, predominantly supported by by middle-class and upper-middle-class people. That's what it boils down to. Modern board games are um, are, 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 are a moderately rich, rich person's hobby, and um, there are enough geeks out there that are still supporting this. I worry that as we get closer and closer to a true depression, that it's going to hit everybody more and more and more. And if it does, then it, it will come a point... Where even those people who can work from home or who are financially well off enough to just, you know, keep on buying you know completely superfluous, totally unnecessary frivolities, which is what all board games are, are gonna have to realize, right, this is worse than I thought. We're gonna have to stop. I'm gonna have to stop doing this for a while. And when that happens, there goes most independent board game developers. Um, I mean, you know, the moves that Asmodee has been making recently, that everybody's up in arms about, um, those are those are money. Those are penny-pinching moves. And if is having to do this, sure, they expanded too far, too fast, and all of that. I, 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 think, I think it's going to be ugly. But it's not going to be ugly just for the board game industry. It's going to be ugly for everybody. Unless certain steps are taken. And uh, those steps are UBI. And it's not going to happen. Uh, um, it's going to happen sooner than it used to be. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. And so I worry. I'm assuming the worst. If there's nothing else I've learned over the, uh, since the events of 2016, expect the worst in today's world. Expect us to make less than ideal decisions as a society. And I don't see any evidence... Well, no, that's not true. I see a lot of evidence that we are making good decisions. Because even though there's that... grow, I mean, oh, gosh, this is getting into politics. Oh, man. I promised. As you will hear later on, a bunch of politics comes up in the personal stuff. And I realized, from now on, any more politics... Because I'm one of the few people... You know, Tom so he says, I'm just not even going to touch politics. I'll answer politics. This is a politics-based question. Maybe he didn't mean it, but it is. Um... In future podcasts, folks, I'm announcing it now. You'll hear me think about it and announce it later. The, any politics-related question, gaming or not, will end up in its own section after the gaming and the personal stuff. So I'll just stop right there. That should just give you a feeling of what I think the situation likely is. And I hope, hope, hope that I'm silly and naive and wrong. Um, I would love, I would love everybody in the world to rub in my face just how great... Things are going to be in eight months because um, our government made choices that I feel were wrong, but it turned out to be right. Nothing would make me be happier than being wrong, 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 and having everybody throw it in my face. That would be great. Fingers crossed. Okay. Um, Let's go on to something more happy from Jack, who wonders, do I have some sort of organization behind uh, my games on my shelves? Because he loves the new backdrop of games facing out front. I read all that backwards. Um, I love the new backdrop of game chasing out front. Do I? I'm really getting loopy, folks. Uh, this is why I don't film entire run-throughs, because the longer I go, the, crazier, the more scatterbrained I get. Do I have some sort of organization behind them um, so that I don't have to pull everything out to find something? Or do I just never touch the games that are back there? How do I decide what games to feature? Uh, right. Excellent questions. Here's the story. Um, the reason I did it is because I filled up these shelves. and what i'm I'm, I'm at four hundred games now, and I'm like, oh, crap. More games are coming in all the time. slowing down a little bit now, of course. But um, crap, crap, crap. I do not want to have to figure out what to call right now. And here's the deal. Unlike my shelves in Malta, which were fairly shallow, they were basically like a foot deep, these shelves are like a foot and a half deep. And it's so wasteful to just stand all the games and just bring them right out to the front. So, And I, I realized I was wasting 30% of these shelves. I'm like, I can't do that. So let's just take the, you know, the big, the, the Ticket to Ride size boxes and just put them out front. And suddenly I'm using 20% of that wasted 30%. All I got to do is push the other games back. And then suddenly, yay, I have room. I, you know, because you can't see it. But just above the camera, on top of these shelves, the mountain of other games that I liked and wanted to keep was just growing up to the ceiling. And it was getting out of control. And I realized, oh, here's a solution. Hooray! So... A lot of the decisions were, oh, this this square box is in that. All right, I'm going to bring this one out because I like it and I like looking at it. And um, bringing it out means I've got more room in that space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So a lot of them were just, maybe even most of them were just, oh, I really like that game and it happens to be in this cube anyway. It'll be now what's in front of the cube. And that's pretty much it so far. I have wondered about, should I shift them up every three months? and, um, you know, bury those and bring some other ones up. I think I should, but I don't know how much work I want to do about that. So that's something I'll figure out later, but it maybe is something I'll do in the future. Um, Organization, yes, I do. Before I made this move, I already had a Word document, which is basically just one gigantic table that um, shows me at a glance... The contents of every one of these shelves. Because already, there were too many games. If I had to find one, I couldn't find it anymore. And I was not inclined, because all these games just went up very quickly with no rhyme or reason when we first moved here. And I always thought, oh, I'll organize them in some fashion later so I can find things. I never did, and I have no desire to do so. So I figured, all right, I'll just have a Word document And it tells me what's in every... And if I'm looking for a particular game, which I do from time to time, you wouldn't think it, but I do have reasons to pull out old games. Often, just because people are asking me questions on my run-through, and i got to find the game so I can look up the rules and answer the question. Because I still foolishly answer every question asked of me. Including here. We're almost done, though, folks. Um, What was I saying? Right. So, I can just fire up that Word doc, which is right on my desktop, and do a search for whatever it is. And that tells me where it is, and I find it. And so I'm still just using that. And actually, this system makes that easier. Because in every one of those cells of the table, I marked in red the game that is in front. So before, I would find out where it is and wait, oh, it could be any one of those, and I'm going to still find it. Now, I just say, oh, it's in the tapestry. Oh, there's tapestry right there. I uh, it, it actually has made it easier for me to find games when I have to go look for them, which is crazy. Um, and it, like I said, it looks much nicer. I'm actually happier about it. Okay. Um, good question. Natalie Hey Natalie from Sweden. Alrighty. Currently playing Snedonia, Deluxe Edition. Oh, I am jealous. I would love to have gotten that. The plan is to play through all the scenarios. Oh, you crazy, Natalie. Um. Although, hey, we've all got time, right? And I still, that get that counts a ten by ten, isn't it? Sure. Tonight, my husband and I are playing uh, game number five, and there's a long way to go still. Here's the question. When a game includes modules, scenarios, mini expansions, etc, do you want to or feel like you have to play them? Maybe it depends on the game if it's pub- publisher sent, uh, Kickstarters uh, or Kickstarter or bought by you yourself. Uh, do you have games in your collection w- uh, where you know you haven't played everything the game has to offer? Oh sure, sure, sure. Um, right. Okay. So yes, I love the modular approach. Um, And my preference is... eh, Well, my preference would be to, every time we play the game, to mix and match. If the game has five modules, to pick two or three randomly every time we play. If the game only has three modules, I'm not going to pick one or two. I'll probably just turn on all three and just play it that way every way. That's how we always used to play Fresco, as an example. Base Fresco, we would play with everything turned on. But, base fresco, plus all the expansions we've got, I would uh, basically randomize probably all the base stuff, and then turn on one or two other things. And that would be my preference. That's how I would go. That is, if I were playing Snedonia tonight, that's how I would do it. Um, and that's my preference, because you know I love upping the variability, uh, the variety from game to game. Uh, in my current situation, it's kind of crazy, but pretty much any game... That's, that comes in through my door, and it's got a bunch of uh, modules, I tend to play it with all the modules turned on. Um, I tend to film it with all the modules turned on. Even if the rulebook says, do not play it with all the modules turned on. It's what I tend to do anyway, because I feel like... I need to experience as much as this game has to offer in as tightly and efficiently a constrained space as possible so I can speak more broadly about everything the game has to offer. This is not what I would do left to my own decisions. A game that comes with five modules, I'm picking two or three. That's the way I would go. Um, Left to my druthers. Okay. And do I have games in my collection where I haven't played everything the game? Oh, sure, sure, sure. That's true for almost all games. Um, I've, I've, maybe most of these games, I've seen everything they have to offer. But, you know, just playing the game a, a couple of times... I don't know. You, you cross a threshold where you've played so many games, you've seen so many things. Playing a game a couple of times is enough. But I have often found... Every time I go back and play a game I haven't played for years, and I go and look at my ranking, I want to increase it. The more I tend to play a game, the more I tend to like it, and the more I want to rate it even higher. So that's just a weird thing about my psychology. I think that's the opposite of most people. People tend to rate things down because they get familiar. I I, I tend to dig things more the more I discover. Last question. Gerald is back. All righty number one. Do did I ever speak to Tom Vassell about my issues with Lahav? Uh, and does it have a? Ha- and does he have a house rule? I did, in fact. The was it the most recent corner to corner, folks? Well, no, you guys know corner to corner appears on this podcast feed, so you've already heard my most recent. We what were we talking about? It was a it was a top five. Oh yes, it was the most recent one. It was top five games where the title of the game is a city. And just nothing else. And of course, Lahav came up. And that prompted me and Tom to talk about it. And um, you can go check that out. Uh, I don't think I convinced him. He certainly didn't convince me. I still... It was interesting, though. Talking about it, I never articulated it this way. But my fundamental problem with Lahav continues to be the game has, effectively, an unlimited money cheat built into it. And his response was, I don't care. Um, Oh, no. He actually said... That yeah, but that's playing against the spirit of the of the rules. To which I said, then the rules should change. Um, so, and he was not convinced. I was not convinced. But yeah, Lahav has an unlimited money cheat, basically, um, or practically. Number two, the legacy uh, aspects of my city doesn't seem to contain any knock on effects from your previous game's actions, but rather just adds tiny new mechanisms each game. Like going from a very light gateway game to unlocking a medium light game over 24 plays, are you going to play 24 games or go straight to the final eternal in- in- eternal game for your review, Gerald? You have just bummed the heck out of me. That is real. I-, I have to admit, I hadn't paid attention to my city at all. I just knew, hey, it's a, it's another, um, it's it's another Charter Stone, but this time from Reiner Kenichi instead of Jamie Stegmeier or another. Uh, Rise to Queensdale, instead of from the brands, it's from Reiner Knizia. And I was super excited because I loved both of those games. And both of those games did really cool legacy-type stuff. Are you, are you suggesting this isn't even a legacy game at all? I mean, that's a real bummer. I don't know for sure. But based on what you just described to me, to me, the joy of a legacy game is not opening boxes. That is beside the point. That's just campaign play. Who cares? It's nice. Plenty of games have done it. The important thing about a legacy game is actually making a legacy of change that cannot be undone. And if this game doesn't do that, then I will very likely just go on ahead and open all the boxes and play the game at the top level so that I can say, here's what you'll ultimately get. I would probably do a run-through of the first game so as not to spoil anything, But then I would play it with Jen and I, probably with the full thing. Uh, And the best I can say would be, that's what we did with the crew. Jen and I, we played, like, I forget. We played, like, four or five games just back to back. And we made it to, like, level... We skipped the tutorials, because I'd played some of them already at a convention. And then we played to, like, level 14 or something like that. And they're like, okay, this is cool. This is great. We love it. Let's go on ahead and play level 40. Okay, let's go on ahead and play... Did we play... I don't think we played the last one. But we played a couple of high levels just so I can get a sense of that. And um, and so, yeah, I basically skipped to the end, effectively, to get a sense for what the full game was. And that's probably what I'll do with my city. And you've broken my heart that that's what it'll be, if you're right, and that's the way it is. That's a shame. That's a cry shame. And on that downer note, we end the gaming portion of this podcast. And if you hold on, folks, uh, Jen will be right back and we'll go right into the personals right after this. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. Jen is here, and she is very much relieved when I told her that there were no game-related questions that she had to step up to the plate for. Uh,
1: Relieved? Yes, probably. Yeah. And delighted.
0: (laughs) Well, it means you guys just have to work harder to come up with game-related questions that aren't quite so specific. But anyway, we are now moving on to the personal stuff. And uh, let's start with Rachel. Rachel, who says, question for Jen. Bengal Spice Tea is my favorite tea as well. Ooh. It tastes so sweet. It's hard to believe it doesn't contain sugar. As a proven tea expert, do you have any idea where this sweetness comes from?
1: I think it's cinnamon. Cinnamon is naturally sweet. Ah. So, I mean, there's so many wonderful sp- spices and bengal spice but i do think probably a lot of it comes from the cinnamon
0: so it's all cinnamon all the time I that love is cinnamon. the secret ingredient of the bengal spice what are you drinking right now honey pie
1: <laughs> i'm having a hot chocolate
0: a hot chocolate yep no tea in that chocolate no
1: tea in the chocolate no
0: not mixing the crossing the streams okay
1: nope.
0: Nope. all right and uh, did you put any sugar in that hot chocolate
1: in a way, yes, I did.
0: What does that mean? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I wasn't even going to broach that. Yeah,
1: I thought you were digging. No, into I that. wasn't.
0: I was just because I thought I was going to give you the opportunity to say you put cinnamon in it or something. Oh. Since we were just talking about the sweetening powers of cinnamon, did no, you put any cinnamon? I did not. Did you put something in it? <laughs>
1: Yes, I did. And
0: I guess we'll leave it at that, as agreed. (laughs) All righty. Next question is for both of us. Um, Let's see. Rachel has a five-year-old Labrador, and her husband really wants to adopt another dog. Oh, lovely. Uh, Hubby and uh, Rachel both work full-time. The dog knows just what to do and when to do it. Well, that is a very handy situation. Mm -hmm. I'd love to rescue a dog, but I also value our current routine. I just keep focusing on all the things that could go wrong. How can I get past this? Any advice you could give on bringing a second dog into a house would be greatly appreciated. And honey, oh. I hid it up till now. There is a dog picture.
1: Oh, what a lovely pup.
0: It is sideways, but that uh. looks like a very good dog.
1: Yep, and I, I don't mind turning my head sideways All right. to, to look at dogs. Oh, well, you know what? I had that <clears> same <throat> concern when we adopted, or shortly before we adopted Tallulah, Dobby and us had been a threesome for so long. You meant you
0: meant Gertrude, or who do you mean? You just said Tallulah. I said
1: Tula because we had. Dobby. Oh,
0: Dobby and we were a threesome. Yeah, I was trying to think of what other dog were you talking about in this threesome. You just meant us, okay? Yes. So
1: yes. Anyway,
0: I'm sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted. <laughs> it all okay. made perfect sense.
1: Well, I'm sure now it does.
0: Tallulah.
1: Tallulah. So You were thinking about So, Duck and I and Dobby had been on our own for quite a while. I would say three or four years. And done a lot of traveling together. And just, you know, everything was good. And um, I thought, well, I do want to get another dog. And Dob was getting a little bit up in age as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can just remember in the weeks going up to it. Because we, we adopted a rescue um, beagle as well. That, um, you know, this is the last day this will ever happen. I'm sitting on the bed with Dobby you know, and nobody's pestering us or whatever. So, and I just thought, oh, am I making a big mistake? But you, you don't know until you give it a go. And Tula um, was not the most trained dog you might have ever seen. She
0: was a wild mongrel.
1: Okay, she was a little bit, a little bit wild. But um, she came around and it took a little while, but, you know, there I learned a lot in the process as well. So I think... If you've got room in your home, it, dogs are social creatures. So I'm sure that your your current dog will be happier once they figure each other out to have a friend around all the time while you guys are working. So I think that's a really good idea.
0: Okay. Um, advice on bringing a second dog in. Ah. Also appreciated.
1: Yes. Well, I think when we um, have been rehoming dogs, we've always tried to... Have the new one and the old one meet in a neutral location, so a park nearby or something like that, um, because I, I don't know if yours is dominant. We always got, uh, whoa, what's it? What is it? The surrendering submissive. Of Thank you, submissive um, personalities. We prefer that, and so we've never really had a problem with the dog joining us in our house. But still, I think it's good to to meet, have them meet on a neutral location, and kind of maybe have a walk together. And do a little bonding before um, number two encroaches on number one's territory. Do you have anything to add? No. Um, and then just, you know, give it some time. Don't be fawning over the new dog all the time and, you know, wanting it right next to you. Give it time to kind of adjust and figure out the household. Uh, I think that's that's probably really good. Give it some time. Um, give it food and, and love when it comes to you, of course. But just, yeah, that's what I think.
0: Okie doke. Thank you, Rachel, and good luck.
1: Yeah, good luck. Let us know what kind of pup you get, and a picture is always welcome.
0: I like how Jen's just cut right to the assumption that you are going ahead. Oh. She didn't say she was doing it. They were thinking about it. And you're saying, like, well, show us the final results. I mean,
1: this could be a couple weeks old. She may already have gone yeah, It's true. Good point, gone. good point.
0: In which case, we were too late. In which case, we were sorry, well, Rachel. Well,
1: I've seen on Facebook, actually, that a lot of the shelters are, are having such fantastic responses during this COVID time of people adopting. hmm So... I think that's that's really good, yay,
0: yay! yay. All righty, uh, let's move on to Michael, who wonders: Has Jen ever fully played through one of the video games that I have designed?
1: Mm-hmm. 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 And which one was that? That would be um, Harry.
0: Yes, Pitfall: The Lost Expedition. It's not the only one, though. You have played all the way through another one as well. But clearly, it made no kind of impact on you.
1: I'm trying to remember.
0: You played all the way through Fable 2.
1: Of course I did.
0: Of course you did.
1: Of course. Yes.
0: And that's how I found out, because uh, watching Jen's playthrough, some of the terrible, horrible mistakes that were made when I wasn't paying 110% attention to every tiny little bit of that game. Um, I wouldn't talk about it now, because I wouldn't want to spoil the ending of Fable 2, although I think probably the moratorium is out. Don't have to worry about spoilers. But yeah, Jen always said that Pitfall Lost Expedition was her favorite game of mine. And it's, it's saying something that she played it all the way through because that game got pretty challenging at times. And uh, Fable 2 does not, but she really enjoyed that one as well. You've never really been into The Sims. Surely Siphon Filter or Brink are no interest to you with all the shooting and the killing. Correct. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. And also, did your ch- parents choose the unusual spelling of Jennifer or did you do that to yourself?
1: <laughs> I did that to myself. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like the symmetry, and <clears throat> seven's always been my favorite number, so it's got seven letters in it.
0: For those who don't know, Jen spells her name J-E-N-E-F-E-R, and it is the bane of her existence.
1: <laughs> no, that she has my hyphenated s- last name is the bane of her yeah, existence. Yeah,
0: that's the real problem.
1: No, Jennifer's not not bad, but yeah, I do. It, it's different, and not very many people have um, adopted it, so um, I like that. It, I, when I was growing up, too, there was a lot of Jennifers. <clears throat> it was a very popular name for girls my age, so... Having something a little different um, suited my artistic temperament.
0: Mm-hmm. But you do regret the bump dash ham.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, if I could just go back, I'd just be ham.
0: Why don't you change it?
1: Because I'd have to, it'd be like I'd get divorced or, yeah, I mean, you have, it's the same stuff you'd have to do if you got divorced. People
0: you, change their names. Can't be that hard.
1: Mm. Oh, we, j- remember whoever it was, Lolo?
0: Lolo? No.
1: Lula. Lulo. Lulo. I can't. Remember. There was a something like that on Facebook last night, and I and I told you, ooh, there's a Rebecca Lulo or something like that, and it, the name just sounded really pretty to me.
0: So you want us both to change our last yeah. name to Lulo,
1: or maybe Lolo. I can't remember what it was. It was a, it was something like that.
0: <clears throat> All right. Okay. Then we have Martin, who uh, noted that during the last Roto talk through, uh, things got a bit heated, and I mentioned wish we could talk a uh, talk it over. Over a pint at the pub. Which prompts Martin to wonder... What do Jen and I do to cool off and relax? Mm.
1: I guess we just talk about stuff. Or maybe go for a walk? Together?
0: Okay. Do you... I I generally don't need to cool off. Because I'm a pretty cool cucumber most of the time anyway. And my whole life, when I'm not actually working... Is 110% devoted to relaxing... Um, that is probably the single biggest difference about between me and Jen is that my default preferred mode of being is yeah. relaxation and Jen's is must be working, must <laughs> be doing things, life is not worthwhile unless I am accomplishing achievements, <laughs> uh, since we had to spend, uh, sizable portion of yesterday installing new planters so we could uh, make... Uh, I looked at that and, hey, let's do a whole bunch of work so we can have even more ongoing work. <laughs> yes. That sounds... You know, And she said, hey, you want to come out here and inst- help me install the planters? And I said, oh, do you want me to come out there and work so that we can work and work and work and work? Because that's what I heard. And she said, yep. And I said, okay. I and where was it. I when we had this conversation?
1: Transparency. and
0: I was relaxing on the couch. <laughs> So that brief <laughs> interlude pretty much tells you everything about Jen's and my uh, relationship.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, so no, I mean I, I, I don't I don't heat up as a general rule, and uh, relaxing is my current uh, is my general state of being. As for Jen, d- um, you don't go for drives or anything like that to cool down. You do get heated up. You do get angry and whatnot from time to time.
1: Yep. What do I do to relax or get get that energy out? Yes. I think I have to talk about it mm-hmm. and confront whatever it is that is bothering me. And sometimes that means I have to go away and have some private time because whatever it is, it'll just be the straw on the camel's back. Um, so usually when I get that angry, I have to go figure out what actually is bothering me.
0: So mm. Okay. Yeah.
1: But I would say, you know, you and I are really good about talking stuff out. Um, your mom and I had a recent little... Encounter, And I know that it helped. I felt a lot better after I said what I was really on, was really on my mind. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think for me, figuring it out and then talking about it, and hopefully you've come up with some solutions so that it doesn't keep happening.
0: And what about relaxing?
1: Oh, I, I'm getting better at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something Jen has to work at. <laughs> yes. Only she could turn relaxing into a, a job. Into <laughs> a work. project. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes, but now I... I Pointed out to him, honey, I'm sitting here, I'm relaxing.
0: Yes. (laughs) Because
1: otherwise he might think I'm...
0: To which I say, are you okay, honey pie? Are you sick? Do we need to get you to the hospital? Something's wrong, clearly. Did you hit your head? What's going on?
1: Uh, A little too much uh, gardening yesterday, I think. Yes. Yes, as far as today's relaxation is concerned.
0: And then Martin went on to further ask, what do we order at the pub? Because, of course, that was a virtual pub I was talking about. I don't drink at all. I haven't drunk any alcoholic beverage since I was seven years old when my dad offered me a beer and I had a sip and thought it was disgusting. Mm. Um, and in fact, I'm super hypersensitive about the taste of alcohol. I always just like even in the tiniest trace amounts, I immediately notice it in food. And it's like, whoa, whoa what the? Yeah, that actually, tastes weird.
1: My stepdad used to cook with wine. Remember that? Yes. He'd make, like, chili with red mm-hmm. wine in it and stuff. I was
0: well aware, yes.
1: And I always thought it tasted good, but you picked up on it immediately. Yeah. And like, no,
0: there have been plenty of times when we've been in a restaurant and I said, oh my God, this is this is booze heavy. And everybody <laughs> else on the table said, what? No, there's nothing. And we asked the waiter, oh yes, of course, there's There's brandy in that. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so no, I don't drink at all. And so
1: just milkshakes,
0: just milkshakes and water. That's it. That's all I need. Um, and what do we, I mean, pubs, what were, if we were at a, if we were at an English pub, what would you order?
1: Probably fish and chips, of course, uh, or a curry maybe. Yeah. Um, oftentimes they have nice roasts. If you go on a Sunday, um, a lot of the pubs will have a Sunday roast on. Mm-hmm. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just all, England's got good food. Contrary to how it used to be, yeah, the, the the food's good there, and I I don't know that I've ever been in a pub that I didn't think had reasonable food. Do you can you yep. think of anything?
0: No, no, no. I don't. I don't think so.
1: Yeah, I mean, pubs are different. They're it's just kind of more of a family event, and you just everybody goes and you hang out and, and all that. So, um, there there's beautiful pubs out in the countryside, and and people just spend the whole afternoon there.
0: Um, I don't know if that's really what Martin meant. Because, of course, you know he was making reference to the fact that I said, hey, we'll have a pint at the pub. Of course, I won't. Um, but, so I don't know if he meant, what would we drink? And for me, I wouldn't drink anything. I would just get water. Yeah, Because, because the British don't understand what a milkshake is, or <laughs> neither do Europeans in general. Neither does most of the world, quite frankly. It
1: does say milk shake.
0: Yes, and they would take that very, very literally. It does
1: not say ice cream shake.
0: <laughs> so, but what would you get? In terms of pints. I mean, you don't like oh, beer, although no. you do occasionally try them.
1: Oh, yeah, and they're always disgusting. The last one I had was... Uh, what's the Irish one? Oh. Um, ugh. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's gross. Um, I like uh, cider.
0: Ciders. So I
1: usually get a cider if I'm at a pub. Okay. And there's, you know, really wonderful fruity ones now. And they're sweet enough that I like them. When I first moved to England, um, I guess that was in 2004... I, I was in the supermarket and I saw Oh ciders and I'd come from here where apple cider is sweet and um non alcoholic, so I bought a whole bunch of oh pear cider and apple raspberry cider and whatever.
0: Yep, that was a bit of a rude awakening.
1: Yeah. Got it got home and I don't know, whenever I next felt like having one, I popped one open and it was awful. I thought, Oh my gosh, it's gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly not how it's supposed to be. So I opened up another one and it was quite tart as well, and I thought, Oh dear. Oh no.
0: Oh no. Well,
1: probably just as well, really. But, yep, so I like ciders. All
0: right, good answer. Thanks, Martin. Moving on to Peter. Let's see here. First of all, Peter, uh, referring our confession that we only eat two meals a day, Peter says, What? Hmm? Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Why do you choose to forgo it? Um, If you reconsider your stance on breakfast, I heartily recommend porridge. It's healthy, affordable, and you can customize it to fit your tastes. Uh, you can tell I've had this conversation with others trying to convert them to my porridgey ways, <laughs> albeit with little success. Would you like to broach that topic, honey?
1: Um, well, first of all, we—I don't think we ever said we didn't eat breakfast. We skip lunch.
0: We don't. We don't eat until noon.
1: Most of the time, yeah. But we eat breakfast foods. Yes,
0: we have at, at lunchtime at noon time. We have our eggs and bacon and vegetable concoction, whatever it is that Jen makes that day. Uh, yeah. So yes, in terms of the but, but in terms of meal time we skip breakfast. We eat breakfast at lunchtime and we don't eat anything at breakfast time.
1: Yeah
0: um, Are you at all concerned, as Peter points out, it is the most important meal of the day?
1: Well I hope that my body is saying, hey, we've had a fast for a while. Why don't we just take some fat out of the fat stores?
0: It's not quite that, but actually Peter, That um, breakfast is the most important meal of the day is a very long and very well-established wives' tale. Uh, It is apocryphal. There's actually no real modern research that proves it. In fact, there's been study after study after study that proves it really doesn't matter, that it is no more important than any other meal of the day. Um, But skipping... Well, it's not the fact that we're skipping the meal so much, is that we are entering an intermittent fasting state. And that has been proven in lots of studies to trigger certain um, biological processes that really streamline our body's functioning. Um, it's not that much really... I mean, you know, it, there's a drop in calories, which of course has a bottom-line impact on weight. But it's less about that and more about... Well, it's really, quite frankly, more about getting back to a natural state of being that is what our bodies are tuned towards via the process of evolution. If you think back to a million years ago, or 800,000 years ago, when, um, you know, you know uh, centuries, centuries before the agricultural revolution, and we discovered, oh, wait, we can build up a society by eating grass. <laughs> um, and, and and because we can grow this grass and eat it, we can have three square meals a day. And store it. Yeah. Pre- prior to that, we were nomadic hunter gatherers, and we were lucky if we had one big meal a day, and um, or you know every other day. And um, you know, obviously, there was lots of gathering and whatnot. But it, we, our bodies are tuned to thrive with the absence of food. Eating three square meals a day is genuinely. And based on what we have read, not good for you. Um, because we have not um, been in our... We've only been modern humans for less than 10,000 years. I think the... Was the agricultural yeah. treasure 10,000 years ago?
1: Yeah, but the more important thing is... we or pretend- is it 2,000 years ago? An industrial society where, you would, where we're eating three meals a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that wasn't happening 2,000 years exactly. ago. Exactly. Even that was still sporadic eating.
0: A- exactly, yeah. So... Um, it's not the most important meal today. That's just what um, probably some counsel on eggs and ham or, uh, Kellogg's. or, or Kellogg's basically forced into public consciousness. And um, you know, I'm not saying you don't need to do it, but you know, if, you, if you do uh, some Google searches on intermittent fasting, there's a lot of science behind the idea of skipping breakfast, which is why we do it. And I'll be honest, at this point, after doing it for a couple of months... The th- I, I don't even think twice about eating breakfast. I'm not even remotely hungry. There have been plenty of days where, um, oh, we didn't have lunch either. And here it is, two, three in the afternoon. And I guess yeah. we should probably eat something, shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, and honestly, to me, that feels healthier. So that's basically where we're at. Do you have anything to add to that honey pie? <clears throat> All right, then. Secondly, uh, you really like hearing about video games, given my experience and background. You know that I have said I don't play often or keep up with games um, now, but what were the most important video games that influenced me, both in a personal and professional capacity? And he also wants to give a shout-out to Fable 2, a brilliant and innovative game from your younger years. Thank you. You are welcome, Peter. That's nice. For the Fable. And, um... Well, I mean, I think I've talked about this before, but surely Pong. Because Pong was super important to me uh, because I was introduced to it probably in 1974, something like that. I remember we had a Sears and Roebuck Pong machine, and I played that thing to death uh, (laughs) sitting inches away from our TV because the cable was really short. (laughs) Because uh, it was the first thing in my life at whatever I was, four years old, I guess, something, that I was better at than my dad. And to me, that was a really important thing. Um, Because apparently, according to my mom, I was really competitive as a young boy. And we played lots of board games. And apparently, I didn't take well to losing. And I can confirm I still don't do it (laughs) till this day. And it's unfortunate I happen to marry Jen, who wins most of the time. But I just have to make my peace with that. But Pong was really a huge thing for me because I was really good at it and my dad wasn't. But he did play it with me. And so that kind of set me on a lifelong, well, up to a point... (laughs) <laughs> I love affair with games. I remember playing those old Mattel handheld baseball football oh, games. Yeah. I played the heck out of those on the bus to school because uh, I was already becoming a uh introverted, quiet, shy, withdrawn kid. So I spent a lot of time doing those. And I didn't I did not like football or baseball at all, but I played the heck out of those things. And um oh jeez. <sighs> I think that'd probably be it in terms of personal impact. Street Fighter Two. When I was working at Nintendo, I played that a lot um, with all the gang at work over lunch, and I so I have like really strong social affinity to that game, I suppose, because I, I I wasn't doing it professionally at that point. Once I started doing it professionally, I think personal meaning in games kind of went out the window, by and large. And, uh, you know, because I, I viewed video games in a completely different way, once I started making them. And in terms of important uh, professional video games, uh, uh, GoldenEye and Tomb Raider were hugely influential, because it, I was combining those two things to make Syphon Filter... And uh, you know the old classic NES Zelda's and uh, similar, or, you know Metroids and similar style adventure exploration games were hugely influential on me when I made Pitfall: The Lost Expedition. And I guess Fable One was influential on me when I worked on Fable Two. <laughs> and what else? What else? Oh, uh, a hugely important one that doesn't get near as much love as it should for being so far ahead of the curve, and really, I think will. In time, eventually, we looked back as one of the most important game changes in the industry. Is I can't think of the name of it now. I want to say Left for Dead. Yeah, Left for Dead. The way it melded uh, the single player and, or, you know, the the uh, the offline and online experience. There, I should say, the cooperative and the competitive experience. That's what I mean to say was hugely influential on me when we were making Brink, and I referred to it a lot in in almost every way. That game is hugely important, and I don't think... I mean, everybody loves it, but it's largely forgotten now. It's a real shame, because it's such a watershed moment that I don't think the industry as a whole realizes yet. Maybe it does now. It's been a while since I've been in the industry. Honey, do you have anything um, that you would like to say about mm-hmm. a personal... He asked me, but any important video games in your life?
1: <clears throat> I would say the ones that gave us the most money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so <that would> be, <laughs>
1: Those were very influential. I guess that
0: would be uh, Siphon Filter. And unfortunately, I had a bad habit of, once the game was done, saying, i got to get out of here. And Jen said, if you could just stay another two years, we'd get all those royalties. And so we did get those siphon royalties, but we did not get much in the way of those Sims royalties. Or those Fable royalties. Yep. Yep. Darr Darr So then Siphon Filter is the single most important uh, video game in history to you. Well,
1: yeah, I guess because actually that's kind of what started our path to being able to retire early.
0: Yes. Yes, yes, it was. It was a monster hit. Um, and, uh, they treated me well and I was a fool to walk away from it all, but I did. Um, no, no personal video games have any meaning for you on any kind of life lesson level. I I know you said you played a lot of centipede as a young girl, mm. but it has no meaning for you.
1: No, I would say the ones that have meaning for me are like, uh, cookies and cream or the Zeldas that we played together.
0: Things where we were playing cooperatively. Yeah. Okay. And
1: we were and we were together and we had the shared experience. I mean, Street Fighter, we we played that a lot, <laughs> as well. But I'm not sure I would have said Street Fighter was uh, important. Mm-hmm. I would say definitely the Zeldas were more memorable and
0: yeah. Okay. Okay. And finally, Peter says, uh, if I recall, isn't Fable Two probably the only or at least the first AAA game that encouraged safe sex with the inclusion of STDs and unplanned pregnancies? Like I said, innovative. Yes. Uh, uh, Although I I believe we had those... or no, did we? No. I I didn't work on Fable 1. Yeah, yeah. Fable 2 is definitely ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. Oh, one more innovative one uh, these days would be... and, um, you know, prior... I mean, I've always loved rhythm games. I love rhythm games to pieces. It's kind of... I do have a regret that I never really worked on one. I was tangential to one because we did have a rhythm minigame in Shark Tale when I did that in Texas. Although, at that point, I was really not involved in the day-to-day on that. But it was just kind of nice to say, hey, I was in the same building when one was made. But, you know, these days, Moonrider, Hey, I've lost 10 pounds in the last month, thanks to Moonrider. So, if that's not uh, influential, I don't know what is. Keep getting Jen to try to play, but she's just not having it.
1: I-, I will have it. Well, all right. I will have a second helping, please, sir. Okay.
0: Okay. Then we go on to Brendan... Who wants to know, honey, have you... He didn't call you honey. I called you honey. Uh, Have you started your West Wing Weekly?
1: We have not. Ah. Yet.
0: All righty. That's all you got to say. Are you going to? You were interested.
1: Yeah, I am, actually.
0: And you forgot all about it until just this second?
1: We have so much to watch. Mm -hmm. My husband does a very good job of uh, finding TV shows that I want to watch. Mm -hmm. So I guess I had Mm -hmm. sort of... Yeah, okay. Set it aside for the moment.
0: All righty. Uh, you'd also like to know who is your favorite West Wing character?
1: Oh. Um, I would have to probably watch them again, but I. All that's coming up is Josh Lyman.
0: All right, time. well, then probably Josh, I suppose. What about CJ Craig?
1: Yeah, I like her, of course. What,
0: what about Sam Seymour? or can he never be Sam Seaborn again because of Parks and Recreation it's
1: hard isn't it it is
0: literally impossible to see him as Sam Seaborn (laughs) anymore (laughs)
1: literally
0: yeah um and what about uh Mr. Josiah Bartlett no nope not your favorite character
1: um but
0: he always did the right thing and he always said just the right thing and his soaring rhetoric and speeches and he solved everything
1: I guess I was thinking of the episode the one with um the Hispanic president.
0: Him. You're meaning in the final season when uh, Jimmy Smits was yes, running to be I the so. running against Alan Alda. That might be it. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's been ten years at least since we saw it.
0: Well, apparently, Brendan, um, Jen is incapable of answering, and you didn't ask me, so. Uh, Moving right along. Richard, have I watched (laughs) Letterkenny? And if so, what did I think of it? I've never heard of it. It's a Canadian uh, comedy show streaming on Hulu. Feels like if Kevin Smith were 30 today and writing for a small town in Ontario... Wow! In Ontario, Canada. Very funny. Very crude. Lots of good people and good morals. Even there's a bit too much punching... Well, you have intrigued me. That goes on my list. Thank you, Brendan. As Jen said, there is just too much to watch, and you've just put another thing on my list. Thanks. Yeah,
1: now he has to stay up till two. (laughs)
0: Um, All right. (coughs) Well, moving right along, we go to Jack, uh, who has two questions. Oh, look
1: at that bolding. I can even see that from here.
0: Yep, yep, yep. All right, let's see. Can I scroll? Oh, I can't scroll down. All right, so I'll move this out of the way. So, uh, Jack, I remember looking at this. This is the one I warned you about, Honey Pie. Um, Let's see. Uh, Long story short, Jack is a... uh uh, a Trump supporter, and he was a bit taken aback. Or I, I don't know if he ever actually said he's specifically a, drunk, a Trump supporter, specifically, but he was taken aback by Jen's and my observations about Trump supporters and how they are easily duped by Fox News. And, um, you know, I think I said the term head in the sand and whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, Jack. Really had uh, you know took issues. And he wrote, he wrote a very long, and very thoughtful, and you know not at all aggressive. You know I I applaud you, Jack. You were you were cool and collected. That was great. Um. So I, I won't uh, uh sum it all out. But uh, the main thing being, uh, Jack's uh, treatise was about the fact that uh, regardless of whether you want to call it fake news or not, there are definitely biases um, in every newscast whatsoever. And he wonders what podcast shows etc. Do uh, we listen to? Asking both of us that fundamentally disagree with our worldview so that we can actually see the world from a broader perspective and not get stuck in an echo chamber like we were accusing Trump supporters of doing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, how can we accuse him of that if we're no better sitting in our little liberal progressive bubbles? Um, and, or, you know, and you asked me, but then you also said same question for Jen. I, I, you look like you were yeah. gathering um, breath. You wanted to actually hit this one. I thought I was going to take all of this. Well, and,
1: I just want to say, all right, I'm not going to list all my places that i read up on but um essentially we have lived outside the u.s for so long yes i'm actually more comfortable getting my news from foreign news sources Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna just say that and i think i've also taken on a lot of european views on some of the things that americans do and i'm an american too so i'm not saying
0: so you're saying you get most of your news from bbc and the guardian is that what you're saying, yeah. or did you not want to name specifics?
1: Oh uh, well, and other ones.
0: Okay. Other, other sources. The Malta Times. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, not the Malta Times.
0: Okay. Um, well, I get most of my news. Uh, let's see. I well, you know, I, 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 obviously John Oliver and Samantha B and you know all the John Stewart, um, progeny are. I mean, they're great because they're wildly entertaining. Um. But I wouldn't say they necessarily always one hundred percent adhere to my worldview. Neither does Bill Maher, but I watch him every week. Uh, and sometimes, I, yeah, Bill, good point. Sometimes, oh, Bill, how could you say that? What is wrong with you? Um, so, but, but I really don't get much actual news from televised sources. Um, what websites do I uh, go to? Mostly the let's see, The Hill, I like, and. Um, HuffPo and Vox, which are definitely left-leaning. And in terms of right-leaning, uh, what is it? The Washington Examiner, I think I hit be, uh, fairly regularly because... Uh, well, I think that's the most right, uh, right-ish, uh, which, which is really your underlying thing, because you're right to assume we're more liberal-leaning. And so, yeah, the Washington Examiner, I think the Hill is generally pretty... Um, genuinely balanced. I mean, heck, you can go to all sides and uh, take a look, um, it, But actually, a lot of stuff I get from video as well. And um, I guess my main news source is uh, what's a, a channel called Now This, which just does nice little, very easy to digest blurbs. And I, you might It's understandable you think I'm just like a really hardcore left progressive, but I'm not. I'm a bit more centrist than uh, some might assume. And so I would say I watch a lot of the majority report, which is very, 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 very far, far fringy left. And I watch it knowing full well that the majority of it doesn't necessarily represent my views, but it's interesting to see the world from that much more extreme edge view. And on the other hand, people will be very surprised, I subscribe to Breitbart's YouTube. Channel um, because I figure if there is going to be one place that's really um, sensitive to the other side and tries to put the best foot forward, it would be that. And I am sorry to say that everything Breitbart does just reinforces what everybody complains about. But their only difference is to say, "Look, this is really great that he's doing these things that the left thinks is terrible and that I think is terrible." Um, there is also some news groups that I follow, or you know, um, or not not news groups, but uh, you know, discussion groups. It's interesting. There's one on Facebook that is really. I, I, I'm just going to come right out. I don't subscribe to it. Is it's it's can be pretty noxious and um, you know and, and pretty awful at times. Um, but it's. Uh, What's it called? It's called Gamers Uncensored because, I mean, you know, it's mostly just a bunch of hardcore gamer geeks that are definitely conservative leaning. And while there's a lot of just like really terrible stuff in there, occasionally I'll read stories about, hey, well, once again, the lamestream media is getting it wrong. The most recent one that really stuck out to me was everybody jumping on the bandwagon to make fun of Trump for suggesting we shine UV lights down our bellies to kill Corona. And somebody said, well, what do you know? Look, here's research, and here's a company that's actually pursuing patents to do exactly that. And they had done a press release just four days before Trump, and it may very well be that Trump was tangentially aware of that, and that's why he mentioned it. I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. I would certainly agree that, um, the left-leaning media doesn't do themselves any favor by being very, very quick to pigeonhole and not show the whole side of the story. Um... Usually, though, that's not necessarily true. Usually, if you dig deep enough, most media will actually have uh, a, a broader perspective of things. But they always have clickbaity titles. Uh, HuffPo is really mm. good about that, or you know, I'm, I'm sorry, not good, really, uh, can um, you know consistent about that. That you know their articles are actually fairly well thought out, and you know they do kind of um, show a more uh, moderate view. You know, that's not too far one or the other, but their their titles are always just absolutely insane, super clickbaity things. And so I, I do find you have to dig a little bit deeper. So, all over the place, I, I used to on Reddit fairly regularly whenever there's some really big insane oh my God, I can't believe he did that now, I would go to the Donald and I would see what diehard Donalders were saying. And unfortunately, I'd have to wade through a mountain of garbage to get to anybody actually talking substantively about stuff. But I do tend to look for both sides wherever possible. Um. No, okay. And then personal question two. Uh, right. So, uh, right. Okay, on this one, on the related note, in that same podcast, Jen said that Trump said, I'm not going to send the governors of the states... Uh, I was sent help to the Governors in the States who aren't nice to me. Uh, and uh, Jack would like to say this is a baseless conspiracy theory. Not only did Trump never say anything like this, but the claim that aid Governors is being conditioned on Trump, who likes or not, is baseless. Actually, Jack, that's, that's not true at all. I will grant you that... He didn't exactly say that. What he did is he very strongly implied that in the same way that a mob boss who knows his line might be tapped by the FBI will um, be very clear about what he wants his people to do without coming right out and saying it. Trump, in no uncertain terms, back when Jen was talking about, did very much say, "Um, yes, we have to do things for them, but they have to be nice to me. That's almost verbatim what he said. And that's not exactly the same as saying, I won't do something if they're not nice to me but that is basically a repeat of why the man was impeached because of his proclivity to make clear through insinuations and indirect assertions that he expects returns on favors and if all that weren't enough Jack, he just did it again this week he once again and this time much more clearly much less obliquely said "Uh, yep, we're taking care of the states and they need to take care of us and again, he didn't uh, mention any specifics, but the message was very, very clear. And again, this is why he got impeached. Because as the president, you can't speak in subtleties and doublespeak, and innuendo um, that gets across a very clear, almost mobster-like message. He has done this repeatedly, Jack. He was literally impeached for this. And I know you might think that's, um, that's fake news, but Jack, I would suggest... Maybe you spend a little bit more time looking at the other side of the aisle um, instead of people who, just, um, who are very, very good. There's a whole cottage industry that's amazing, and Fox News is great at parsing his statements to try to, oh, look, but if you only take this one subclause and forget about the context of the entire paragraph, this is clearly what he really said. And you know what? Communication is contextual, and, um, yeah, he did say that. But anyway, to your question, if Jen isn't listening to anything that, um, could have corrected this mistaken belief, it was not mistaken. It was not mistaken. Um, how could Jen accuse others of bearing their head in stance? Actually, that was me that accused others of that. How do you and Jen try to avoid confirmation bias, which is something everyone is susceptible to, not just Trump's force? Yes, you're entirely right there. And I think we're back to a Greaseville, which is great. And, um, I, I think really for myself, I um kind of tried to address that. I really do. When, when I see something that is obviously, well, okay, that's ridiculous. And it's often, it's often true, Jack, I will grant you, that Trump says stuff and he's being sarcastic. He is joking. Um, and the press is very, very quick to treat it as if it was serious. And I agree that doesn't do anybody any good. But you know what? It takes two to tango, and maybe Trump should actually take his job a little bit more seriously and um, not throw things out there specifically. I and mean, he he brags about this. Oh, I'm just throwing out red meat, so the jackals will pick it up. Um, you know and. That's not a very presidential act. The man is an embarrassment to our country. And apologies to anybody who's a supporter of him. I support you to support who you want. I think it's great that you go out and vote for what you think is most important in life. We can agree to disagree. Please disagree with um, what I just said about Trump, if you disagree with it. Um, Doesn't mean we have to be at each other's throats about it. But, um, yeah. What was I just saying? Oh. Uh, yeah. Um... I, as I said, I do, you know, I mean, it's obvious to me sometimes he's taken out of context in an unfair way, but he invites that through his behavior and through his repeated patterns. Um, and so I, I seek out both sides wherever I can. Believe me, I'm, I'm kind of glad. I mean, man, the Donald Reddit site is just so awful. And I've spent a lot of time in there Sometimes thought about posting, realized I really shouldn't. And um yeah. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, honey pie. The thing you have to understand about Jen is too, really, for the first time in I would almost go as far as to say her entire adult life, Jen is actually paying attention to the news. Is that a fair point no, to say?
1: I, I think I used to actually, when I should I was say younger.
0: following the news.
1: And I'm mainly following it at the moment because of the COVID stuff. Yes. That's mm-hmm. really important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So But yes, I guess
0: so. Yeah. So Jen's still kind of new, and I think that's perfectly reasonable for somebody who's just jumping into the news train to find uh, a message that resonates with her. Because, hey, that sounds real. Like you said, it's it's confirmation bias. Um, I think more than anything else, Jen has always relied on me to try to present a fair and balanced view of the world to her. Because Jen's pretty much just focused on just making her glass and taking care of us and um, watching out for the dogs and stuff like that. So that's pretty much how I think we live our lives. Anything else to add to that, honey pie? Nope. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for the email, Jack. And like I said, also, thanks for keeping it super civil. Uh, it was awesome. I think you were totally cool with how you broached this topic. All righty. Moving right along. Lucas has a personal question for moi. In my last podcast, I said I listened to a lot of podcasts instead of listening to music. Do I mind sharing which podcasts I listen to? Uh, no, I don't. I, it's it's not very many. It's just that podcasts take a lot of time. And, um, right. So I listened to the Dice Tower. I'm actually, I'm opening up what podcast, what is the name of my podcast reader? I use Pocket Casts. Uh, and I paid the little bit of extra, which I don't even have to pay now. I think it's totally free. So it'll keep what's on your phone sunk with listening to it in the browser. So that's really nice. Um, the Dice Tower and uh, the Ezra Klein Show. Hey, Jack, there's another new source. And actually, Ezra Klein, I know, obviously, he's Vox. He's very, very um, left-leaning, but I think he does a very good job of devil's advocating with everybody he talks to. Um, all right, uh, no pun included, I've been listening to, and I love the Cracked podcast, although probably only one out of every three episodes. Pretty much whenever da- David Pargin, or Jason Pargin, is on, those are always amazing, and often... Fundamentally, worldview altering for me. I was introduced to the idea of UBI years ago on the Cracked podcast, and it really changed my fundamental view of humanity as a whole. So, the Cracked podcast—if you can get the good ones, not the ones about you know weird movie tropes or stuff like that—but things that really get to the heart of humanity, which is why I just wish David, uh, you know, David Wong or Jason Pargen, his real name, would just do his own dang podcast. And I, even if he only did it once a year, I would subscribe to that. Oh, and also Yang just started a new podcast and I'm almost through his first step and it's fantastic and it's just so good to hear him it's just so soothing to hear him talk intelligently and rationally about the problems we face without any kind of animus towards um, you know either side and just being uh, focused in 100 Sound Solutions oh my gosh he's so great what we could have had oh well um, right honey you listen to some podcasts as well
1: yep I listened to uh, some of the Tim Ferriss podcasts Tim
0: Ferriss yes that's I couldn't think of his name
1: uh-huh. Um, and the uh, Economist one, what's that? Um, Freakonomics. Thank you. Freakonomics. Mm-hmm. And th- I've just recently become aware of a couple of glass-related ones, but I haven't started listening to them yet. I've just kind of went, oh. Oh! I think one of us Talk out of your glass or something like
0: that. <laughs> oh, sassy. <laughs> uh-huh. Sassy yeah. glass artist. Talk yes. out of your glass. Yeah. All right.
1: So, uh, I yeah, I might start listening to a bit more of that.
0: Yep, cool. All righty. Uh, Yannick... Or, thank you, Yannick, points out in the email, pronounced Janik. Janik is from Belgium, and he's got some questions. And they are specifically... This year, um, we've made a trip through the state of Portland. We have a trip through the state of Portland and Washington planned in July. Oh, not the greatest of timings. Uh, me and my girlfriend really love visiting the U.S., but thanks to our friend, COVID-19, the chance of doing that trip becomes smaller and smaller every second. But if not this year, then next year, what are the places we would recommend visiting? Um, uh, Janik and his girlfriend really like taking the atmosphere from the location we're visiting. Hmm. I don't know that I have anything to say about that.
1: We haven't really lived here very long. Um, Portland... He only
0: lived here for, through our entire 20s.
1: No, he's talking about Portland.
0: No, he's talking about the state of Oregon and the state of Washington. He's, they're doing oh, a uh, they're doing a multi the
1: state of Portland.
0: Yes, sorry. I oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's the state of Oregon. <laughs> yes, he's doing Portland and Washington ah, state. Yeah,
1: sorry. Then that changes my answer. I, I didn't mm. have a lot to say about Portland.
0: Yeah. No. Oh uh, yeah.
1: So, um, but uh, Washington, yeah. Gosh, just going up the the coast would be absolutely fantastic. You can hit all sorts of wonderful little towns along the way. Um, I would definitely recommend that you have a reservation when you get up towards near Forks, because there aren't a lot of, um, housing options available and they are expensive and if you, you know, hotels or whatever. So definitely plan ahead on that if you do get to go. And, um, actually, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about July of like local Don't events. Don't worry
0: about, you know, Daisy is outside pawing to get in and Jen's feeling obligated like a mother hen going to her chick. Yes. Honey, it's fine. She'll be fine. She'll settle down. Her, I, You're, you, you, stuck I know, and it's adorable. Let her be adorable. Uh, she can sniff us. So, Forks, okay. continue.
1: Oh, uh, so my mom and I went on a, um, a drive there last summer, and that's what we found. It was beautiful and wonderful, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, so that's the coastline. The whole coast between in Oregon and, and Washington is wonderful. If you want specifics about cities, uh, we lived in Seattle, so we can tell you to find yourself at a Dick's Deluxe. That's the local <laughs> burger joint, and they are really tasty burgers. Old-fashioned, like from the 50s.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, not that I was alive in the 50s, but from what I understand. Uh, what, what else would you say about Seattle? Pike Street Market, of course.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much... I mean, uh, yeah, Pike Street Market is going to be the number one on any top ten thing that lists the things to do in Seattle. You can
1: pick up some market spice tea at mm. the Pike Street Market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a whole it's a business called Market Spice Tea, so <laughs> probably you find that easily. Okay. Um gosh, yeah. I mean it's really nice to take a ride on the ferries. So if you if you have time to do that, just a ferry over, do whatever you want in uh, wherever your ferry ends up, and then you know, come back the same day or whatever. It's just it's a really pretty view to come and go from Seattle that way.
0: No, I got nothing. I I'm sorry. Whenever anybody asks me, because we got I got asked this all the time about Malta when we lived in Malta, and my answer was always, "Hey, you know what? Whatever the top ten things TripAdvisor says, that's probably pretty much what I would say if I really stopped and thought about it. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm just I like to travel, but I I don't really have a head for cataloging, uh, you know, sense of place type things. So I'm afraid I don't really have a good answer. But it sounds like Jen did, so hopefully. Good luck on that trip. Um, yeah,
1: hopefully you'll get to go.
0: Yannick also says that American politics is a thing that he's become really interested in, and he's uh, talking to people about it, and wonders, honey pie, Yes da- Daisy's fine, <laughs> who um, was or is, in our opinion, the best president the U.S. has ever had?
1: Who oh, Ever. That's really hard. I can't really speak for ones that were doing their stuff before I was alive.
0: You're saying you're not a presidential historian?
1: I'm not a presidential historian. So I'm just going to say Barack Obama. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me...
0: He was the best one in the time that you were paying attention.
1: Yeah, but he's just a decent human being, Mm. and I really... Respect and admire him.
0: Well, I think the majority of them are decent human beings. I mean, the tricky thing, uh, Janik, about the American president is really the vast majority of what the American president's responsibilities are is to be a cheerleader for the country. It's, um, we've got this weird system where the the real power comes from Congress. And nobody ever talks about, hey, what was the greatest Congress America ever had? (laughs) Uh, Because that's really hard because that's just a big deliberative body full of people. And I mean, yeah, of course. Oh, the easy answer is say Abraham Lincoln. Sure, why not? You know, he ferried the country through the darkest hour. I mean, as bad as things are now, it's inconceivable how bad things were during the American Civil War. It's something everybody could uh, stand to remember in our modern day time of hyperpartisan politics. So far nobody's literally succeeded from the nation yet, no matter how partisan it's gotten. You know, um But, you know, all presidents do good things and bad things. You know, FDR, he brought about the New Deal. He also interred Japanese Americans during the war. Some good, some bad. Um, Lyndon Johnson uh, really got us into Vietnam. Also uh, brought about huge breakthroughs in civil rights. Um, Barack Obama, uh, you know, brought the first step towards universal health care to all Americans and basically helped us recover from one of the greatest economic downturns in generations. Also uh, engaged in a really horrific worldwide uh, drone program. So, you know, you got to take the good with bad with all of them. And um, really, at the end of the day, you know, they, they get veto powers and they have certain executive actions. I mean, Richard Nixon, tricky dick, signed the papers for the EPA. Did he write the Environmental Protection Act? No. Again, you really got to give the credit to uh, members of Congress who actually made that happen. Um, but anyway, so it, it, there's no easy answer for that. If you if you put a gun to my head, I'd say Lincoln, because I don't think any president has been faced with such a trial. Um, and yet somehow, you know, we came out the other side. And you know, I mean, I I I think that's probably certainly the biggest accomplishment any American president has ever brought about. Uh, but I, I'm not a presidential historian either, so I, I'm probably ill-advised to uh, you're ill-advised to seek advice from me in that regard. But anyway, if we move right along, someday Josh or Jen will come back and answer Josh's question. I'm right here. Oh, you just won't leave Daisy alone. She's scratching at the door. It's fine. You, you know why she's scratching the door? Because when she does it, you go and open the door. All righty. Josh from Buffalo says, If we could instantly teleport our, our entire house and everything in it to anywhere in the United States with no additional costs, where would that be? He's basically asking, "Where do we want to live?" But you know, very smartly, very cleverly, um, getting rid of the "Oh, well, it all depends on you know what the house would be like." And and the other like, "Okay, uh, if we could just basically transplant our entire life anywhere, anywhere in the U.S." Yeah. He didn't say continental, so you could go to Alaska if you want. Get some, get that sweet oil That's check.
1: Still on our continent. Yes, fair enough. Um, hmm. No, not cold not cold. I I don't know. That's a hard one cuz we actually had that option. We looked at all of that when we No, 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 I got her. I got her. I got, I got Daisy. Um, to, on my lap. And he means he wants me to talk closer to the microphone. Yes. Okay, so essentially when we moved here, we we could choose anywhere. So I feel like I've kind of already been Well, not anywhere.
0: This. We couldn't have been in downtown Manhattan. I mean, or Los Angeles. Too. So. I mean,
1: but I wouldn't want to live in the middle of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if Central Park was my garden. But no. then nobody else would have that, is there?
0: You've often said you would love living in London proper. I would. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. Okay, London.
0: That's not in the U.S.
1: Oh, right. It certainly isn't. Um, anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is we we looked. And I think this is pretty nice where we are.
0: So you're saying you would pick the Pacific Northwest over anywhere else in the United States, including Hawaii, including Alaska, including Arizona, including, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I think so. All right. There you go. Although now that we lived on Malta, I might be able to live on Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It's just Malta was only an hour flight from anywhere, really. Yeah. And Hawaii is several hours away.
0: Yes. The one time we went to Hawaii and I thought, wow, we should move here. This is awesome. Uh, Jen always said, no, I can't live on a tiny island in the middle of nowhere. It's too scary. And cut to S- 25 because. years later, we did exactly that.
1: Yep. Yeah, but it was scary because it's out in the middle of the ocean. And if, you know, a tsunami comes along or something, there isn't anywhere nearby.
0: Honey, we weren't going to be able to swim to Sicily. <laughs> if. if uh, yeah,
1: but Sicily would have sent some boats out for us. <laughs> I'm sure they would have taken care of Maltese people.
0: Hawaii has all the boats.
1: Yes, but they've been all wiped out by the tsunami. Oh, right. Capsized tsunami. Yes,
0: uh, my mistake, yeah. Yes. All right, well, there you go. The Pacific Northwest wins against all odds. Did
1: he not care what you thought?
0: Uh, I'm not sure, because we're moving on to Carlos. Okay. Who also likes Andrew Yang. Um, but why, Carlos asks, is Andrew Yang's UBI idea feasible, and yet Medicare for all is pie in the sky? Um, It's... Uh, Medicare for All is not pie in the sky. Bernie Sanders' very specific implementation of Medicare for All was pie in the sky. Um, There have been many other much more reasonable and potentially viable alternatives that achieve the same result, which is free health care for everybody in the United States. And Bernie, basically, his plan was the most hardcore, progressive one... Uh, proposed literally in the entire world, and it has the un- misfortune of of being proposed in a society where the idea of employer um, provided healthcare is so hugely interwoven into the entire economy and has been for several generations that Bernie's just, okay, we will literally take this industry that employs millions of Americans and we will put them all out of work you know, in a very short period of time. And, oh, well, don't worry. We'll train them all and they'll get new jobs. It's just... it's It was patently absurd. It would never happen. Um... Other ways to pursue Medicare for All, like, say, Andrew Yang's plan, which builds upon what we already have and leverages systems that are already in place, would not face an uphill battle against one of the most powerful um, industries in the world, which also, if successful, would have put millions of Americans uh, jobless. Yeah, Bernie's uh, Medicare for All was never, ever going to happen. Um and not for nothing, you know, People always said, "Oh, I love Bernie's plan." Until they were actually presented with the realities of his plan, and they said, "Oh no, don't want that plan." Uh, they like the they like the phrase Medicare for all, but not the realities of how Bernie proposed it. That's why it's pie in the sky. Yang's UBI or just UBI in general, on the other hand, does not face an entire industry's worth of opposition. It's actually um a fairly center of the lane plan it's something that republicans have definitely supported in the past R- richard nixon as a republican governor or, or president was poised to sign ubi into um law national law back in the 70s until the democrats screwed it up um it's actually if anything the the crazy thing yang As a Democratic president would be pursuing a a policy that would get more acceptance from the other side of the aisle than anything else. That is why it was possible. Alaska, which is a very conservative state, has had a form of UBI for decades, and everybody loves it. And the conservative voters of Alaska have um, stated, you know, definitively that, look, we will accept our taxes being raised so we can keep this going, because. It is a truly, I mean, it, the use for universal, not only in the fact that it applies to everybody, but that it works on both sides of the aisle, and it doesn't literally put millions of people out of work to implement it, unlike Bernie's Medicare for All. I mean, not for nothing, Mitch McConnell, the uh, Republican leader of the Senate, has got a very tough race uh, this year uh, with another Republican challenger who's coming to take him down. What is the center of uh, the 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 center platform of his Republican challenger UBI, um, you know, and if he succeeds and takes Mitch out, one of the most powerful um, Republican senators in the country. Will well he won't because he, he will be coming in as a junior and all that but still there will just continue moving forward being more and more and more sport and of course COVID has as uh, as Andrew Yang often says is basically bringing about ten years of societal change over the course of ten months and so everything is going to have to be accelerated this is why UBI was feasible while Bernie's Medicare for All was not uh, because maybe. Uh, be, because one of them was. Why, do you further ask Carlos, does Yang <laughs> deserve credit for pushing UBI into the narrative, yet Bernie is an extremist for pushing Medicare for All into the narrative? Um, Bernie is a, a great, impassioned public service who his whole life has been fighting the good fight. And that is very, very hard to deny. Or, um, But Bernie... Uh, does not really have a great track record of working with other people. Bernie has spent the majority of his uh political career you know being a lightning rod pushing for things that can't actually succeed um and there is a very a very important thing to bear in mind in all of life and certainly politics. do not let good or perfect be the enemy of good, which is to say um you know. The the Bernie style approach of no, it has to be this amazing utopian ideal that is likely incapable of actually ever coming to pass, and anything less than that is selling out to the corporations. Um, that is saying, oh, it has to be perfect. When in fact, you know what? The Affordable Care Act exists. And instead of just scrapping it along with everything else and starting over, how about we build on that? How about we use that as a tool, as another rung on the ladder that we all ultimately agree we should get to? That's the fundamental difference. um, At least from my perspective. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, like the majority of Boris, uh, Bernie supporters, I voted for Hillary. Good job. Uh, in fact, lower percentage of Bernie supporters stayed home or voted for Trump than did Hillary supporters and stayed home and voted for McCain. Um, yeah, because McCain was not an existential threat to um, to the country. So, but still, good on him. Uh, yet, there's no nickname for those people. There's no slandering uh, name for the Yang supporters who are not going to vote for Biden. Um, actually, no, there's, there's plenty of slander to go around. But the reality is... And there were, um, there were definitely slanderous, um, you know, what do you call them? Never never Obamas. I forget what they were called. But yeah, there was a diehard contingent of Hillary voters back in, um, what, uh, in 08 that were, uh, you know, slander just as much. It wasn't quite as noticeable because the internet wasn't at that point quite so the epicenter of all things online. However, the diehard yangers, and um Yang Gang and the diehard uh Hillary Hillary bots. You never heard the term Hillary bot? Really? It's a pretty common term. It's and that was a kind one. There were much worse ones. Uh but anyway, uh diehard Yang Gangers and Hillary Bots, while they might um you know dig their their feet in and be really stubborn and not look at the bigger picture, Bernie bros take it to a whole nother level. The level of 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 of, uh, anger and aggression and, um, you know, and just outright. Oh, and I don't want to say real violence cause it's not real world violence, but, um, you know, just the, the aggression and it, it's uh, br- sorry, sorry, long story, short, short Bernie bros are terrible. And when you say Bernie bros, you are not talking about all Bernie supporters. The vast majority of Bernie supporters are just kind-hearted and passionate uh, people who truly believe that we should be striving for the best in all things. And that's great. More power to them. Bernie bros are a very, very tiny subset that are very, very loud. Um, that go after people, um, that dox people, that do all kinds of really terrible things and, and do everything they can, um, to, to get those who they think are against them and hurt them in every way they can online. And it's, it's a whole different world of extremism. And yes, of course, that is a very, very tiny, 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 tiny subset. But they have a huge footprint on pop culture because they are so loud and um, so... Oh, oh, yeah. Anyway, um, it's tiring to constantly be constantly attacked for caring about progressive ideas. Um, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that you're being attacked, Carlos, for being a progressive. You, you, you shouldn't be. Um, I'm not attacking you, just because I disagree with you. Right. You're an extremist. You're divisive. You're the reason Hillary lost. Um, Right. I don't blame... uh, Boy, I really could get uh, Bernie bros mad at me. And again, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about that really hardcore extreme. Here's the thing. My problem in the 08 election and the way Bernie comported himself there after it was numerically all but impossible for him to get the nomination. And yet he kept fighting all the way through April, all the way through June. And he kept reinforcing the, you know what? We really need to see her speeches because she could be corrupt. He never let up on that up until the 11th hour. Now with Biden, to a certain extent, I think he learned his lesson because he backed off. And, um, you know, because he, because even after Bernie got on board, with Hillary and was a great campaigner and was all over the place. At no point in any public speaking engagement where he was out there trying to get people to vote for Hillary, did he ever have anything nice to say about Hillary? All he ever rallied on over and over and over again was, we must defeat Trump. Trump must be defeated. He's the greatest danger we've ever faced. Trump is bad. Trump is bad. It doesn't matter who, um, uh, you know, whether you like uh, Hillary or not, you must vote for her because Trump is bad. That is not a great way to get your base to actually get engaged and excited about the other side. Um, and that was a real problem. And I kept waiting because early on, in um, the, uh, you know, the 08 primaries or the 07 primaries, I was very impressed. One of the first things Bernie ever did to really get on the national stage was in one of the first debates. He said, "Um, we're all sick and tired about hearing about your damn emails. (laughs) And that was awesome. And he got a lot of press for that. He got a lot of attention. The first time I ever really paid attention to him because like, wow, that is an amazing attitude to take. Let's hear more from this guy. And then cut to six months later. You know she should really release those tri- those uh, speeches, and um, because she could be corrupt. And, you know, he did such an about face on that. And he just kept drilling on that, even though Hillary never returned, never made it personal. Her argument against his was always, hey, you know what? Remember this interview you did recently when you were asked, how, do you, how does this system actually work? And you just threw up your hands and said, I don't know. That was her arguments against him. His arguments were, you might be corrupt. I can't be sure. You might be corrupt. And even when he got on board, I'm not actually going to say anything nice about you. I'm just going to say Trump is bad. That's my problem with Bernie. Um, back in 08. Jen has been very patiently just waiting for all of this to stop.
1: No, it's fine. Okay. I got Daisy's belly to bring.
0: All right, excellent. Um, right. Bernie and his supporters are constantly being attacked, but are we the divisive ones? Yes. No. Not all of Bernie's supporters. Again, the vast majority of Bernie's supporters are just impassioned, idealistic people um, from all walks of life, all ages. The uh, It's just unfortunate... I mean, there was a really great Saturday Night Live sketch a few months ago, back in February or March. You know, it was another uh, political opening one, and uh, you know, I loved. If there was one thing I was super happy about the idea of uh, Bernie becoming president, is we'd get more Larry David as Bernie Sanders on SNL because he was so awesome. And I forget the exact thing, but you can find it on YouTube. It was um, you know, in the line, of the effect of: Do I have an army of internet trolls who follow my every word? <laughs> yes. Could I do something to stop them? Yes. Am I going to? Meh. And for the longest time, um, all the really outrageous, um, you know, super aggressive um, rhetoric that came from this very tiny portion, Bernie was just totally silent on, or at best, he would he would give very mild rebukes as opposed to very firm. I I fundamentally stand opposed to what this small percentage of my backers are doing in my name, and um, if I have any influence over them, I insist that they stop. He never did that. And in the absence of doing that, he gave these hardcore, very aggressive, again, super tiny minority of people, oxygen to continue to breathe and continue to flame. And I'm sorry, Carlos, that that meant you, a perfectly reasonable and passionate and considerate and caring person, um, got kind of hit in the uh, crossfire. Again, I would say that's something that Bernie could have done a lot more in um, in uh, in the public eye to try to help address those things. And I think it was a failure of his that he largely just ignored it. Alrighty, So I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Oh, whose fault do you think it would be if a candidate takes zero attempts at persuading a segment of voters and ends up losing? That's a rhetorical question. I, I know it'd be my fault. Oh, okay. Anyway, love the show. Stay safe. You too, Carlos. Honey, do you have anything you would like to say about any of that? Nope. Nope. All right. Okay. Then let's move on to Adam. And I'm sorry, folks. This seems to be a very political episode. Politics breeds more politics. Maybe I should, in the future, say, hey, let's have three sections. We'll have the <laughs> uh, game section, the personal section, and then we can have the politics section, and Jen can walk away. That You know what? If, if if this keeps up, I think we might have to do that in the future. Same way we keep all the Star Wars. Because we have yet to. I'm sure there's going to be a Star Wars question before too long. <laughs> all righty. Anyway, Adam says, I mentioned in my stream with Tom Vassell I have a distaste for Bethesda. Is there any story I'm willing to tell? um Gosh, I feel like I did ultimately tell it. Long story short, they were our publisher. They from my perspective, were not very good to us. Uh, No, certain elements. The Bethesda marketing, those people were great. Um, Production, they were pretty good to work with. But the upper executive level of Bethesda were actively engaged in trying to run us out of business so that they could acquire us for nothing. Um, and it was basically throughout the majority of our time on that, and it made it very, very difficult for us to be able to pay our employees, because they would pull all kinds of shenanigans. And so, it's very, very difficult for me to look at a Bethesda game, no matter how great it is, and not just have this kind of gut reaction. So, I mean, that's it. And I, I probably, I don't know, um, there, there are specifics, but I'll, I'll I'll save those for down at the pub.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. Daniel. Oh, Daniel's back. Okay. Uh, Daniel is probably the origin a lot of this political stuff, because he had... Um, I think... Actually, I don't remember exactly, but I just mostly remember Daniel's last name, because it's a very unique name, and I wouldn't even dare to try to pronounce it. Yikes! Uh, but anyway, Daniel um, would would have to disagree with my and Tom Vassel's uh, statement that one should not worry if they get that one game, because there's plenty of other games out there. Uh, Daniel believes that's uh, um, too general a statement. Sure, probably the majority it's true. But if you like a lot of games and have a lot of games, you find a game that you like as much as El Grande, for example. I mean, which is a pretty example of a general thing. There's lots of other things you could, you could get if you can't find El Grande. But for someone like me who has a particular taste in games and likes only a small amount of them, it's not true. For example, my favorite game, or at least tied for my favorite with Spirit Island, is Starcraft, the board game. There's no other dudes-on-a-map fighting game that I've seen um, that I like even remotely as much. And, um, so if I didn't get StarCraft in 2009, I would miss out on my favorite game. And I've really, 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 I've I've tried looking for others to come close, but to no avail. A game that is heavy, thinky dudes on a map, but also low luck and no dice combat. I've even spent a year looking for niche war games and have had no results. And if I didn't play StarCraft, I would probably never get into medium-heavy Euros, since I thought really low of them prior to StarCraft. Uh, So basically, you're saying StarCraft is a really interesting mix of Euro gameplay uh, mechanisms and uh, Ameritrashy-style conflict. That's cool. Uh, Might I suggest, if you haven't checked it out... um, I forget the t- full title, but Athlas, A-T-H-L-A-S is in the title. You, that one might work for you. Anyway, though, um, there was no question in all of that. You were just stating that you disagree. Okay. <laughs> but related to something in the personal section. Or, okay, no, but all right. Um, I think that's fair. Here's the interesting thing, though. In your case, where you have a very, very small niche uh, level of games that you appreciate, I don't think, I mean, there's not a single board game that you cannot get. No matter how rare it is, you can go on BoardGameGeek right now and buy it because somebody is selling it. And um, you know, that's a problem if somebody feels like, "Oh my God, I must get every out-of-print game because they're all so important and I must experience them all." Obviously, that's what Tom and I are talking about. No, dude, you don't have to. But if there is some perfect grail game that scratches all your itches, but unfortunately it costs 150 bucks because that's the going rate for it, um, actually, I'm, I'm going to find out now. I'm going to find out. What does uh, StarCraft the board game go for on The Geek? I'll uh, take a second. I need to um, come over here, and then I need to come over here, and uh, then I have to come over here, and then we come over here. And this is particularly <laughs> exciting for you guys to listen to. Uh, I'm just perhaps, you, what's happening. perhaps you just like to listen to Jen stroking uh, Daisy's <laughs> belly and uh, and Daisy ever so softly snoring. Perhaps <laughs> she, that would be more engaging. Actually,
1: she just had a, a pretty big snort a minute ago. Uh, all right, Starcraft,
0: I- the board game, came out in 2007. And if we go to that page and then we wait ever so I, did, did I, I said search. Come on. And then it thinks about it. And then now I got to go to the other page because it didn't come on the first page. And then we finally, finally, finally get to market. All right. So I could buy that game. It looks like on average for between 150 and 200 euros. All right. Plus international shipping, depending on where you are in the world. Um, oh, there's one for $175 if you're in the U.S. So that's kind of what I was guessing. I was figuring it was going to be around $150. Looks like it's going to be around $200. So I only say all this to... In, in your case, Daniel, where you do have that Grail game, you can get it. And since you... I mean, so... you know, And, and, and if, if it's going to be the center point, if it's going to provide you so much love and enjoyment, and it's one of only eight games you can play, well... Great, Um, go out and get that game. Fantastic. Um, It's it is available for you. Uh, You know, I I, am having the same problem right now. If I mean, I am so sad that we lost our um, Walnut Grove. It got lost in the move, and it's not 150 bucks, but it's probably going to be 70 or 80 bucks, I would imagine. And I just can't do it. If I, however, if I were not in the state I am right now, where at least 10 to 15 new games come through my door every month that I have to play and film. I would probably go out and pay that full premium price for it because I know how much I love it. Um, As opposed to saying, oh, well, I guess I'll just try to make do and get something else for 50 bucks." I I, I don't know. I I guess I'm just saying, I agree. That's great. Uh, In your situation pay that 200 bucks, and have the game of a lifetime. There's plenty of brand new games these days. I mean, quite frankly, if Starcraft the board game came out today, it would probably have a default uh, SRP, MSRP of 120 bucks, because of all the plastic games and how big and expansive it is. Um, and so, you can get it for a markup, but not an insanely huge markup. So, it's out there if you need it. I'm not sure if that's... Well, since you didn't ask the question, that's my response. All righty. But, yeah, I think you do have a question over here. Uh, related to something in the personal section. What's my top 10 lazy game mechanisms? Hey, that's a... Oh, gosh darn it. These are both game-related questions. There even says right up there at the top, gaming-related. Oh, okay. Shoot. Daniel, I'll get to your other gaming-related when I do the gaming, because, of course, I haven't done the gaming yet, because it just drives... Ah, oh, it's so hard to do this backwards. <laughs> I would have answered that three hours ago. Oh, should I just clip all that out? no. Um, I'll just mention when I get to that that, hey, Daniel, your other one will be coming in the personal because I know you're going to listen to the personal anyway. I'll save this other one. But anyway, now to the personal stuff. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, and it's, not, it's my fault, Daniel. Um, you said it right up there that was gaming and then I just started reading it anyway because uh, I, I think I got uh, obsessed with your last name. alrighty <laughs> um Right. If something is different and not adam- uh, it's not automatically good, uh, think about the horrible expansions of games you like. You have said it yourself about Runebound 3rd Edition um, it's different, but you don't like it because it makes the game way more lenient towards players. and there are certainly some expansions to the game earlier. really so same goes for Gloomhaven. Haven Oh dear. Daniel, where's the question Mark? You write so much stuff and the, oh dear. and the same goes for last Jedi. Um, okay. <laughs> Wow. Wow, 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 wow. It is. okay, going on and on. And, um, yeah. And, okay, at this point, Daniel, I'm really sorry. I'm just scanning for a question mark. Because this is a Q&A. And I'm, I'm sorry, Daniel, this is too much. Tell you what, Daniel. I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm totally cool with talking with you. Could you write this stuff in again? I'm sure this is still in your outbox. And 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 bold the question. That would really help a lot. Um, I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. All right. And okay, now we're into... All right, we're into the next section. I'm just going to skip that one um, that had to do with whether being different is good or bad. Please, um, you know, give me a question. Um, All right. Hope uh, thing agreed with there should be publicly mandated quotas. Oh, now we're getting into all of that. All right. I'm just going to scan and see if there's a question in here. Trump supporters. Um, At one point I said, uh, the fringe and uh, putting emphasis on every point is exhausting. And oh, dear... There's not a single question mark anywhere in here. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry, Daniel. I mean, I could just read your entire thing, but it's so long. It's so long. And I already spent so much time looking up the cost of... And there wasn't even a question there, and I had to come up with something to say because you didn't give me a question. Oh, and then we go on to... uh, Yeah. And then Star Wars. And then yeah, we got to Star Wars, and Luke being a Mary Sue, and... I am wrong, and that's not proof. And uh, lazy writing. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, Daniel. Uh, I think you and I would have a great time just throwing down IRL. Um, but I, 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 and I'm not. Please continue to write in. You, 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 you write provocative thought. Um, you know, exercises here. But if you could. Um, as Alex present, as Alex Trebek would say, present them in the form of a question, <laughs> Jeopardy style. That would really help me out, buddy. So, um, please come on back next month, and uh, and we'll and we'll get back into it when we might have had to make a whole separate politics section. Okay, sorry. Anyway, moving right along to William. Uh, Thanks to you, I bought an Oculus Quest. Wow, that's amazing. They're so hard to get. All right, do you have any other games for the Quest that uh, other than Beat Saber? Uh, and if so, which ones? Um, actually, strictly speaking, I don't have BeatSaver. I tried the demo of BeatSaver and I thought that was nice. But then, uh, basically, go to your browser inside Oculus Quest and go to the webpage moonrider.xyz. And that will take you to a totally free version of a clone of BeatSaver. It was originally developed so that mappers of BeatSaver could use it to test their tracks without having to load it into BeatSaver. That's why this thing came about. And they did a little bit more work and turned it into a, cel- a standalone playing game. And that's what I play. Although I don't play it in Saber mode, because I genuinely don't find it particularly engaging to um, whip around sticks at things. I like to physically hit things. Um, so Beat Saber has this awesome punch mode that is better, and I've tried all of them. I've tried Box VR, I've tried Synth Riders, I've tried a... I can't say I've tried all of them. I've tried a bunch of them and returned them all, because I keep coming back to Moon Riders, because it's so amazing and it's free. The punch mode is fantastic. Uh, Other stuff... Of course, I did the... uh, because it came with it for free, the uh, Vader Rising. That was pretty cool. And um, I did just get, and I've played it once now, the new Supernatural, which is a... uh, you know, it's, it's, it's another... Beat Saber clone, but it's 100% devoted to actually giving you a real proper workout, and I did one session with it, and it took me days to recover. I was amazed how much it just knocked me out, and I'm really thinking I might switch away from Moonriders, even though I love that because it's got all the music I love on it, to this other thing that has okay music that I don't particularly care for, because it'll really put me through my paces. Unfortunately, it costs 20 bucks a month as a subscription service, and I don't know that I can cotton that. If Jen would get into it, then I think, oh, $10 a month for each of us, yeah, it would make sense. But I don't know, because I see your next question is, does Jen play on it, and if so, what does she play? Answer, no. Answer, nothing. You've had very little interest. Um, The one thing you really liked... I forget the name of it, but there's like a little virtual pet you can do that lasts for 10 minutes, and you go through a couple little mini-games, that cute little fantasy creature, and you like that. That seems like the only thing you've even remotely responded to, and everything else... You just like eh, don't care. Just not even remotely interested. Is that correct?
1: Um, I, well, I like the lightsaber thing, but it doesn't... But
0: uh, not enough to even re- remotely think about going back to it.
1: Yeah, yeah I guess
0: so. Yeah, I, I pretty much have to drag you kicking and screaming to even put the thing on. And I actually went out and got a special sweat-proof extra mask on it because Jen complained, ah, your sweat's on it too much. Like, okay, look, we got this cleanable thing. (laughs) And she said, nope, still. uh, Can you say why? I mean, it's obvious to me. You just don't care. VR has failed to engage you in any particular meaningful way. And I think the listeners would find that interesting as to why.
1: Okay, I guess that's true because I don't really care.
0: Okay. Yes. That is just a restatement <laughs> of the face thing. The question is, why? What? Uh, wh- why um, do you find it uninteresting? When it, in fact, it is effectively... I mean, it tricks your brain into thinking all these fantastical, amazing adventures you can go on are real, and yet you just don't care. And it's also an insanely great way to exercise that is endlessly fun and never gets repetitive. And you don't care. I mean, just uh, you're just really... I mean... I'm I'm honestly I this has been riding around in the back of my brain for a while so I'm glad you asked William although it's unfair cuz this is putting you on the spot cuz I don't think you have words to explain why you don't care.
1: I think I don't care because I would rather walk the dogs.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Okay.
1: Yeah, and Or do a yoga class.
0: All right, there you go. righty. They do have a uh, VR yoga as well.
1: Why would I want to do yoga with a big old heavy thing on my head?
0: Ah, uh, you don't know till you try it. Mm. But anyway, um so, yeah, I guess that's that. I'm, so,
1: I'm still gonna give it a try.
0: You don't need to, it's fine. It's my toy, it's fine. You never. I mean, for, for uh, 20 years of marriage, you did not play 95% of the games I played. Yeah. So, it, that's just continuing, it's fine. It's just a kind of a bummer, but it's okay. It's okay. Um, right, so. Sorry, William. Um, I'm mostly using it as an exercise tool. There are a couple of games I would think that, yeah, I'd really like to play that. I see videos of it, and I say, oh, look, it's on sale! It's 20% off! I should totally... And like, but I'm not going to play it. I'm just not. Oh, there is one other game I do play quite a bit. Although, again, it's just because it's really fun, but it's an incredible physical workout. And it just wipes me out if I play it for more than 10 minutes. And that is Pistol Whip. And that thing is amazing. I love it to pieces. Um, I could almost make that the entire basis of, a, of an exercise routine, except it's too hardcore um, because it just it's 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 so intense. But I love it, so I, I highly recommend pistol whip. righty. Well, of course, watch some videos of it before you buy because it might may not buy your thing. Okay. So that was it for William. Then we move on to Michael. In one of the two corner to corner episodes, I briefly mentioned my job as a gameplay counselor in Nintendo. Can I go into detail about the job what it entailed uh, were I a human walkthrough book was I a human walkthrough book for Nintendo games? Did I have to know all games or did I have a catalog? Uh, what were some of the games moments in them that people most frequently called about any information I can provide is is fascinating to Michael uh yes, this was um that you know. Yeah, this was before the the internet as we know it today existed. Uh, this was back when, before the World Wide Web existed. Uh, yeah, you could do GopherNet, and you could do Usenet, and that was definitely the realm of the most hardcore computer geeky geekers. So regular people, if they got stuck in a video game, they and this was before strategy guides became a thing. They, you know, they didn't exist yet. So if you were stuck in a game that you had bought, you can't move forward unless you call this number that was in the instruction manual for your game, and you ended up talking to me on the phone, and I would walk you through whatever it was you were stuck in. Of course, I know I, I, I can't even imagine the department exists anymore now. Um, bye, honey pie. You done? Well, you're going to be talking about this for a good five minutes. Okay. I'll be right back. So Jen's, uh, Jen will be back. I will stretch, because I can certainly do that. you you're um, perfect. Right. Uh, Let's see. What was I saying? Oh, okay, yeah. So people would call in, and they were stuck. And yes, I, I can't say I had an encyclopedic knowledge of every single game that was available on the NES and the Super NES, but... I had a uh, encyclopedic knowledge of a high percentage of it, because it definitely made me better at my job to have actually played these games myself and experienced the problems so that um, I knew what I had to do to get through them, and I could coach other people through that. And uh, we did have a database. It was called ELMO. That was an acronym for something. I do not remember what. Electronic Lookup Manual Online, maybe. Something like that. I don't know. And um, it was a really primitive DOS-based thing. Because, of course, we, this was before mice were a thing. Because we didn't have uh, Macintoshes in front of us. Because it was all... Anyway. Um, and so, we had a database. And the database basically had... there. Some of us, as kind of a part-time side job, would actually write up write up full walkthroughs of how the game is. So, oh, you're stu- what level are you stuck in? Okay, well, what part? And then I could just scan through and find the part they're talking about and pretty much regurgitate back to them what the description said. And that was always the worst because I think the caller would know. Could you know, oh, look, you're just reading from a script, aren't you? And yes, I am reading from a script. Yeah, I tried to make it sound like it was really me, but no, I'm just reading from a script. No, I've never actually seen this. And um, nothing was worse than, well, could you transfer me to somebody who's actually played the game? And you know, I, I, hey, they were frustrated, and you know, they might have already called three times and got hurt, gotten the exact same thing and regurgitated back to them two or three times. So. I felt it was my job as a good gameplay counselor to have played all these games, or at the very least, all the games that people really got stuck on. Which, uh, not surprisingly, was all the hardest games uh, at a time when video games were much, much harder than they are right now, just as a matter of course. So, yeah, I... Did have a near encyclopedic knowledge of hundreds and hundreds of games that I had played. Um, the, you know, I had played often not because I liked it, but because I needed to get to that spot so I could see why people kept calling in about that particular thing, and so I could put into my own words what I did. Because often, you know, the strategy guide I was reading it was written by one of my coworkers. Well, that's what they did. Maybe that was a really hard or weird way to do it, and not the way that I found. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much what the job. Entailed. It was eight hours a day, and the line was always super busy. I mean, we were, you know, the the light on our phone uh, machines was always red, and so it was just nonstop people talking to people who often were very frustrated, were to the point of tears because they, you know, they just going to get back or, 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 or um, you know, angry, just furious. Um, and I learned a lot on that job about how to deal with people, how to cheerlead people through tough times. Even though, of course, it wasn't true tough times, but it was definitely a great job that I was able to use to great effect for the majority of my professional career as a game designer. Not only because I had so much firsthand knowledge of so many design things that had been done in so many hundreds of games, more so than any of my contemporaries that I worked with, but also because I had all this practice. In working with people and helping them through frustrating times, so it was a it was a great college job. Um, uh, you know, particular games and particular moments, people got stuck in. Uh, I, I it's been so long. If you would have asked me about this even five years after, I could have probably given you a laundry list. But at this point, I mean, this is what thirty years ago. It's um. <laughs> Yeah. Or 25 years ago, a quarter of a century ago. Sorry, that kind of stuff doesn't stick out. The kind of stuff that really sticks out to me that I remember are... Well, there's one... There were, the, the thing that was most frustrating to me about the job was we had very strict rules about what we could and could not say. And some of them were like kind of silly, but okay, whatever. We were never allowed to say kill. We were never allowed to say, okay, well, you need to kill that guy. We, um, And you might hear this still come through. I, I think it's so programmed in me, I don't often say kill when I'm talking about stuff in um, my, my run-throughs. I say defeat, because you're supposed to say defeat. Um, because, you know, so much of... I mean, Nintendo was really sensitive to that. And um, But the big problem was, there were the game action replay and similar pieces of hardware you could buy and plug into your Nintendo system that were not licensed by Nintendo, and we were not allowed to even acknowledge the existence of these things. But there were so many times when I knew, oh god, if you just went out and bought this thing, you'd be so happy because this would let you get past this, or would give you the lives you need, whatever. Uh, because they, it was, a, it was a system that literally hacked the games and, you know, just changed the the memory so you have infinite lives and stuff like that and i i did i still remember it was literally um uh, you know a, a lady who must have been in her sixties or seventies who was literally crying on the phone because she was so frustrated by a particularly tough part of a game that she could not get past and i knew i knew it was just hard there was no strategy it was just really hard and there was only one thing i could tell her to do and that was well you know there's this thing you can buy called a game action replay they've got it pretty much at any place where they sell uh, n- nintendo games if you plug that in you could get right past this and I told her that, and that happened to be a call that I was monitored on, and oh man, I got in so much trouble for that. Um, it was I was really kind of a firebrand back in the day. I'm much more moderate these days. Um, and I was always in weekly meetings just shouting, from, we need to take care of these people! We need to tell them the truth! And all kinds of stuff like that. I was so ridiculous um, and so fiery. But yeah, you know, it's those individual human moments. It's, it's, I forget the game. It was, you know, the interaction with a human being that was on the other side of the phone that I could picture and imagine what they were going through. And so that's the stuff that really sticks out to me. Okay. Jen is back. And Deborah, just in time for Deborah, who says, hello from our former, our former home of England, Re- watching a corner to corner. I discussed our safari experience and Deborah, honey, would like to hear more. Her husband and she met on safari in Tanzania, got engaged in Botswana, and honeymooned in Uganda. Where did we travel? Uh, well, uh, what first were... of all,
1: was that all like, you know, three days at this camp and three days <laughs> at the next camp? And That
0: was a whirlwind romance.
1: Indeed.
0: Uh, where did we travel to? Uh, what were our top safari highlights? And what did we not like? Hmm. All right.
1: Well, we started in South Africa. Yeah, yeah.
0: which we didn't do any safaring in South Africa. That's We just flew into Joburg and um, did some stuff. All right. I'm, I'm bringing up map Maps.google.com. I'm to make sure we... All right. Let's see. Don't need that area. Zooming out. <laughs> yeah. Zooming out. Yeah, Zooming over. Chances. Zooming in.
1: Okay. Right. So we were on a really cool thing. So we saw Namibia a little bit, Botswana and Zimbabwe on ours. Mm-hmm. Um. Actually, did we go into Zambia?
0: I, I was going to say, didn't we go into Zambia? Zimbabwe? I I think we did.
1: Yeah. Or no? I think we. Did we, we go were into? Z- were we at that point right there where um all the countries meet and we crossed there? I think so. I think we did.
0: I think that sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, I
1: think that's probably. How where long it got, was it? It was, it was like two
0: people. weeks, right? Was it three weeks?
1: Um, it was pretty long. I think it was a ten-day safari. Ten day. Okay. And then we had a couple days in general, on either end. Uh, well.
0: In we, Johannesburg and.
1: One day in Johannesburg, and then two days in South Africa. After. Yeah. Uh, in Cape Town.
0: Okay. Right. Right.
1: So, yeah. uh, It was amazing. And I am so, so glad that we got to go do it. It was like living a completely different life.
0: I think we... Did we ultimately go to three different camps? Or was it four? I think there was four. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because there was uh, Botswana. And we crossed over a couple of times. I think we were in um, definitely Botswana, definitely Zimbabwe, and definitely um, uh, Zambia. Yeah. And I think we we were right next to Namibia, but we didn't actually go into it because I believe we crossed there where the the okay. four countries meet. Alright. So anyway, uh, it was amazing. We got to be in the Huangay National Park and um let's see, I'm trying to look look on the map.
0: Chobi, I remember yep, Chobi. Chobi, oh, definitely
1: yeah. Chobi, and yeah. then go up north. What's that big green thing right there? Kafui, yeah. Kafui, yeah. Yep. All okay. right. So that's where we were. And you know, small camps because Uh, fortunately we got to travel with my parents. They had been wanting to go to Africa for for a long time. And since we don't have children, (laughs) (laughs) my parents have what, what they call the Beagle education fund where they're educating their, the Beagle masters, um, (laughs) instead of the grandchildren's college fund. So anyway, they took us along with them and they,
0: uh, Oh yeah, this would have been way too expensive for us to do. Um, yeah, totally. It's, it's expensive to do a 10 day, uh, African safari tour. And I mean, we are super lucky that we got to do it. Um, yeah. And so it was it was either three or four camps. And it was pretty much the same in every one of them. I, I'm sure you've probably experienced this. But for people who haven't, you, you come in. And every day, you go out for probably, what, five hours total. You go out for a while in the jeeps. You come back for lunch. Or you have a lunch out in the you know, out in the savannah, not savannah, but the plains, wherever you are. Um, And you come back, there's just all you can eat food, uh, lots of, you know, other things like, you know, going to local villages and, um, you know, getting to an understanding of, you know, the local cultures and way of life and and that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, back to the email. Do, do, do. Where do we travel? Got it. (laughs) What was your top safari highlights, honey pie?
1: Oh, I think one of mine definitely was with those that whole pack of elephants crossed our path, yep, and the it's a matriarchal society, so the the girls are look the ladies are looking at us, and it's really obvious what they're transmitting is that we are crossing here, do not come close to us. Um, Do not attempt to threaten us. We will flatten you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, these are the people I love, basically. And I just that came through so clearly how protective the older elephants are. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was that was beautiful. And I would say the other thing that really uh, that I remember a lot was we were out and it was, I think, kind of towards the end of of a drive in these big jeeps. And we saw a cheetah. And it was the first cheetah we'd seen because they're they're fairly rare. Yeah. But the reason that we saw it was because there were about, would you say, 100 guinea fowl all chattering after this cheetah. I mean, they had seen this cheetah. There was not going to be any element of surprise for this cheetah for quite some time because these 100 (laughs) guinea fowls were just... And they were just basically chasing this poor cheetah, and this cheetah's is just trying to leave. It's just <laughs> trying to get out of whatever you know territory these guinea fowl were in. And it just, it just, you could just tell it was miserable, poor yep. thing. It was just like I've been totally. I've outing. been made. Yeah. Yep. Time to get out of here.
0: Yep. So, yeah, that was hilarious, actually. Yeah, I, f- I totally forgot about that. Yeah. And I
1: can't believe we we didn't film it. No, we did. We did not film it.
0: I'm pretty sure we did. We
1: might have like the last yeah, yeah. little tiny bit of it. But yeah. it was just amazing. And, you know, these guinea fowl are a nice lunch size <laughs> as far as the cheetah's concerned. But in numbers, they rule. Yep. So that was really cool. What, what about you, Honeybee?
0: Well, I already talked about this, as you said, on the. And, yeah, I mean, I talked, I, I gave the elephant story. Um, and actually, the elephant story is one that really stands out. I mean, obviously, we saw a million things and uh, you know, all those watering holes we went to and, and all that. It was all amazing. But. Yeah, the elephant encounter was certainly the one that stood out the most. Uh, and, I don't know, it always felt like the other Jeeps were always seeing better stuff than us. No matter what. And I'm sure they all felt the same. That, well, they are, they're the ones who were, you know got to see the lion. And by the time we got there, it was gone and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it was tricky. Um, because that, that was the nature. I mean, we were part of, I mean, the, the whole group was, what, 10 people? I was thinking 12. 12? 10 or 12 people. Yeah, I think and there were two Jeeps of six each. Yeah. Yeah. Was it
1: two Jeeps of six? I you think sure. So.
0: Yeah, but,
1: yeah, because there was two. two, two yes, remember? yes, yes. Okay,
0: yep, 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 yep. So it all, the other Jeep was always getting to see the good stuff. And like I said, I'm sure they thought the same thing. And uh, But at the end of the day, we'd all just get together over dinner and talk about what we saw that day and show pictures of what we saw and all of that. Um, and what didn't we like? I can tell you the number one thing I did not like um, was... It's nice that we had en-suites in our little tents. But, um, you know, Jen and I generally tend to keep our gastrointestinal uh, activities private and separate from each other. Uh, there's no doing that out in the wild. Everybody gets to hear everything. <laughs> And it's just you know, hey, we're this is gonna be the is gonna be our life for ten for ten days. That there's just like this little piece of canvas between us, <laughs> yes, while like I am uh, trying to deal with whatever I had for dinner last night. <laughs>
1: Which so, invariably had carbs.
0: Yes, so that's unfortunate. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was easily my least favorite thing. Yep. know uh, About you.
1: Um, my least favorite thing. I think the. I was gonna say, there was some the traditional rigors of travel, which to me are going to the airport, hanging out at the airport. You know, hopefully you have an interesting flight where you can see some neat stuff or whatever. But then you're back at the airport and you have to get your bags, and there's and then you have to get to wherever you're going. So this is sort of what I think of as travel these days is that that sort of thing you have to do to be able to travel. And because we moved around so much. And I think we were in four different camps and, or maybe it was five camps in four countries. It, it was just a lot of this sort of travel and just kind of waiting to get to where you wanted to get to. And there was some cool stuff that we did see along the way. But I think um, uh, if I could do it again, I wouldn't go to so many camps. Mm.
0: Okay. Oh, another thing that I absolutely hated was they wouldn't let us have internet. Oh, yeah. That was just so awful. Um, every camp... And I don't know if it's just universal or it just happened to be this tour agency that that was there. Look, you are not allowed to use internet, period. Um, only at certain times, at certain stops, for a half an hour can you get online and check your email. Otherwise, you're supposed to completely tune out the rest of the world. And I think the, our tour guides and the runners of the camp just fundamentally did not understand how problematic that was for us. Uh, you know, and not for us, I mean, everybody hated it. I mean, you know, there, there was a couple who, whose, um, kid was in the hospital. whose kid was in the hospital, but they still had to come. They couldn't cancel. And so they were worried sick and they couldn't be checking their email and there, there were, you know, and, and, and me, I was still working at the time or, and, you know, and there, there was all these things we, we all need to be, and we were both terrified what was happening with Brexit. Um, you know, and, and it was just, it was just nightmarish. and, at some point, I think day seven, we almost revolted uh, because we we were we were doing a long bus ride from one camp to another, and there was some gift shop we stopped at, and, and that a, gift shop no,
1: it was a border. it was a border crossing, yeah, border it was crossing. a border crossing,
0: and so we had a there, it, had it took time, and there was board, there was internet at the border crossing, and um, you know we all had to go through and show our passports, and we were going to be through there in like fifteen minutes, and we were all like, no, we we are not leaving until you let us we need an hour here. And I think, <laughs> I, I think, think we, we, we an hour, well, no, but I um, no I think we oh. kept going. And then i because mean, I remember later that night, he said, look, I'm really sorry. I, don't, I think, I think, you know, we, we don't appreciate just how important it is for you to be able to stay connected like this. Um, tell you what, from now on, we'll try to be better about it because I mean, I, I it wasn't us, but I think, you know, I think some people were like threatening to you know, like get the guy in trouble, you know, and he was a really wonderful guy, our tour guide and all that who, you know, took us through it all. So it was was a real problem. In one of the camps, I was able to befriend somebody. And after hours... Um, they let me sneak into the uh, camp office, which of course had internet. All, these places all had internet; they just wouldn't turn on the Wi-Fi or they wouldn't give us the passwords. And so I was able to sneak in, and so that that was my favorite stop because every <laughs> night I and, and we couldn't let anybody else know we were doing it because then everybody it was just it everybody was it was to. ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And I'd be willing to bet now that doesn't happen. I'm yeah. sure they're all Wi-Fi wired up because that was just so frustrating. Um, all right. Anyway, though, that's it, Debs. Unless you have anything else to say, honey pie. Nope. Okay. No, it,
1: was great. it was great though. Amazing.
0: Yeah. On the whole, fantastic. Uh, William is back, wondering, what level of Beat Saber do I normally play on? Well, see, again, I don't normally play Beat Saber. um, And I I play Moonrider, which is Beat Saber adjacent, but when you're playing punch mode, and therefore you don't have to worry about direction arrows, you just have to hit the right things at the right time. So I pretty much play on the highest level possible. Because generally, the higher, the more difficulty level, the faster you have to move, the longer you have to reach and extend, and the better a workout it is. Um... I have played some Beat Saber, and I'm pretty much just at normal level. Uh, I, 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 I'm sure if I could, if I want to, I could get better. But I just fundamentally do not find it is just much more fun to feel like I am physically reaching out and punching things rather than hitting things with a laser sword. So I just never got into it as much. Um, uh, Darren wonders. Uh, would I... Ca- oh, no, that's, I almost read a game question. Yikes. All right, personal question. As chicken owners, mm. maybe you can answer something that Darren has been wondering for years. Why, oh why, do eggs come in large, extra large, and jumbo? Why is large the smallest egg you can buy? Are there small and medium eggs that we just don't get to see as consumers?
1: Mm. Well, I know in the UK they they sell medium, large, and extra large. Mm. So. Um I don't know about small, but then they'll sell quail eggs or something, which are obviously tiny. Mm-hmm. so I think um, I think there probably used to be small and large ones, and then when supermarkets came around, they had to differentiate their offerings a bit, probably it's all marketing yep, marketing, but I mean, it is true there are eggs of different sizes, of course, and I've even had the same chicken you know as her life progresses, she lays bigger and bigger eggs. Because she gets a little looser and looser, I guess, as all those eggs have passed by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. That's going to be my suggestion, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid your quest for knowledge will have to continue, Darren. But Can we suggest going to, what's it, the Backyard Clucker or whatever? Oh,
1: backyardchicken.com.
0: Backyardchicken.com, which Jen loves so much.
1: What? No, that's not it. Backyard...
0: Uh-oh, now Jen's got to check the website.
1: Actually, now I can't, of course, think of what it is.
0: Isn't it Backyard Chickens? That's what I remember it as. Maybe. That air. doesn't sound right now. Backyard Chickens uh, Forum. Forum. Backyard Chickens. That's
1: probably it. Yeah.
0: Probably okay. Backyard Chickens.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right. I don't know why. Not
0: that they'll know either. It's all marketing. <laughs> all righty. It's why, you know, the new and improved formula continues to be the new and improved formula two years after it's launched. Okay. Natalie says how do I Jen and my mom react to the news of the corona pandemic were we mentally prepared for something like this could happen um and you know were we helped yeah so it's, it's, it's backyardchickens.com chickens chickens all right uh were we helped by our love for the board game pandemic
1: mm Something could happen due to due to our love.
0: Were we prepared for it because we love pandemic?
1: Yeah, um, I think I was more prepared for it because I read The Stand and <laughs> a few other of that kind of uh, disaster uh, medical stuff. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked those books for a while, so I, I read a lot of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we didn't need to be prepared because. We pretty much all three of us live a life that is 100% conducive
1: <laughs> to, being in to, a to
0: being in a quarantine, pandemic, lockdown type situation. We, um, you know, it, it, and it's actually surprising. You know, my mom used to be a very social chatterbox lady who, you know, everybody in the neighborhood knew and she knew everybody and she was always involved and stuff like that. And we kind of figured, hey, when we get her out of her cabin in the middle of the woods, and we, we get her down here, and there, you know, uh, because we're in kind of a, an area with a lot of elderly folks. She'll start making friends and be involved and stuff like that. And it turns out, nope, she won't. She would rather just um, stay away and uh, you know stay inside. And she's not necessarily looking to make friends and all of that. She's happy just uh, you know chilling and, and keeping to herself. So she's already predisposed towards it. I certainly am, and um, yeah, I guess Jen is too.
1: Yeah, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten more solitary or more introverted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, really, not much changed except we couldn't go grocery shopping as much as we might normally do. Yeah. Well, we've been doing you know, two or three weeks of shopping in one since But, today.
0: I mean, the reality is, I mean, we were already predisposed to get... I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. We buy our meat a year at a time. Yeah. Um, from, you know, local, you know, organic... Farm. Gr- grown farm where we you know meet the animals themselves and see how they're treated and all that. and so it's all ethical, well, as ethical as slaughter for meat can be. Um, and then we keep it we we have two freezers full of stuff in the garage. Because one freezer was not enough, as it turned out. So we were already just kind of predisposed towards this life. Jen did get hardcore into chickens because she was worried about peak oil, specifically because of that novel that scared the crap out of her. So, I mean, yeah, we were just really well-suited. And hey, we both work at home. How convenient is that? Um, so it's like this was made for us. All righty. Um, but as for pandemic... No, I don't think so. I We have pandemic because Jen... Has a love for uh, pandemic style fiction because she was so into movies and books about it. And the guy at Blue Highway Games, when he asked, Well, what do you guys like? And I mentioned, Well, you know, my wife's really into, you know, this kind of not post apocalypse, but actively during the apocalypse uh, <laughs> stuff. And that's why he suggested Pandemic to us because he said, Hey, we want something where we can work together because we like that in video games. And my wife likes it. He said, Perfect, you got to take this. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, Pandemic didn't make Jen. She was already the way she was, and that's why we played Pandemic. Yeah, there you go. All uh, right. And then Natalie also says something a bit more positive. What song currently playing on the radio do you and Jen really enjoy and like when it comes on?
1: You know which one I'm going to say?
0: I don't know. Uh, is it I Like You?
1: hmm By Ben Rector.
0: I, is that the title of it? Yep. I Like You?
1: Yep.
0: Yeah, we don't actually listen to the radio. We pretty much subscribe... Wait, wait. We subscribe to Pandora, so we don't have to hear commercials. What's that? Five, six... Seven bucks a month, whatever it is. I thought um, it
1: was 20 bucks
0: a year. Oh, maybe it's, maybe I don't remember. Um, it's auto pay. Unfortunately, we don't pay enough, so we can only have one stream of it at a time. <laughs> so Jen probably listens to it up in her studio 90% of the time. Yeah. And, it, oh, we want to turn on down here. It'll say, warning, somebody else is already listening. Do you want to cut them off? No, I guess not. <laughs> so Jen bogards all the radio all the time, which is why she's... Johnny on the spot, being able to name, and I couldn't tell you. I honestly don't know. I haven't listened to music regularly for a long time. Um, The last one I can think of that I was really happy when it would come on, when, before we were paying for Pandora, so we could listen to it in every room, because we actually had commercials as well, um, (laughs) would have been Pompeii. I really like, or no, yeah, is it, yeah, Pompeii from the band Bastille. Man, I love that song. Oh, the first time I heard it was when they performed it uh, on Saturday Night Live and oh my god that really just got to me on a really deep you know um core level and then I started noticing it on the radio or on Pandora or maybe we made a Pandora channel out of it something Mm, like that um so that would probably be the one although it's a little old now because I'm old not up in uh hip and current like Jen the uh only one who gets to listen to Pandora okie doke Natalie's back no, I accidentally uh, copied a second of her email, so that's the same one. Then, honey, we're almost done. This is it oh for goodness. all the marbles. Anthony, uh, oh, no, strange. not not Anthony. Uh, Gerald says, uh, "Okay." Uh, Gerald is working on a, a board game, and he says, "I keep redoing my board game's art constantly." As I feel, it's not good enough. Jen, do you, or was there a time when you felt like your art was good enough when you compare it to other artists?
1: Oh yes.
0: Also known as imposter syndrome, A.K.A. artist self doubt.
1: You know that is such a slippery slope because you're always going to be better than some and worse than others, and um...
0: except for one, somebody out there is, is exactly... very nervous. Yep.
1: Okay. I was gonna say, but everybody exactly else, me. Yeah. every
0: other one. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's all a relative scale. And you know what? The people that I think I'm better might think that they're better than I am.
0: I'm sure they do, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's just oh, such a slippery slope. I think the answer to that just has to be you'll know when it's right. And if you're going to go for that feeling, yeah, it's going to take a while. I mean, you might want to decide when good enough is good enough. You know, if you have a deadline or something. Like he was talking about earlier, you don't let perfect be the death of good. And sometimes you can overwork stuff. So, um, yeah, I think I think I just know when it's good enough. And sometimes I know I could push harder. I know I could try a different something. But I like it. I like where it is. So, that's it. That's enough. All right. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. And then, of course, folks, did I call it a while ago?
1: Oh, I didn't actually answer his question. Uh,
0: well, his question was, um, do you now, or was there a time when you felt your art was good? Well, you know, he's talking about the moment when you felt your art was good enough. Um, when you compare it to other artists, when you got over the hump, when you weren't constantly saying to yourself, yeah. I, you know, I'm not good enough, smart enough, and people don't like me, you <laughs> know,
1: know. I've definitely so he's
0: talking about that moment when you got over it
1: Yeah, okay, and
0: which you just kind of said,
1: so I didn't actually answer his question, but obviously I'm there because I,
0: well, can, can you identify, can you pinpoint whatever it might've been? Was it a particular work? Was it a particular period? Was it a particular breakthrough? Was it a particular other artist you saw? And Well, gosh, I'm so much better than that person that I'm good enough. Or, you know, I mean... Hmm.
1: No, I don't think it was any of those things. I think it was probably just when I got far enough in my skills that I was able to create what I was thinking I was going to create. And it wasn't all a hassle or not a hassle, a a hard, you know, slog to get to it or... You know, it wasn't coming out the way I wanted it or whatever. I mean, when I I just, I think when I sat down and I was able to make what I was intending to make, that's when I felt like I was good enough.
0: Okay. Alrighty. Um, And, folks, it's time for a Star Wars question with spoilers, Gerald says. Um, I watched Last Jedi. The scene with Rey and Kylo at sea was one of the most powerful scenes in film history for me. Which means you're actually talking about uh, Rise of Skywalker. I think. It reminded you of an exorcism. How did I feel about that scene? Um, folks, I'm going to talk about scenes uh, um, for Rise of Skywalker, which was incorrectly labeled Last Jedi. So, uh, if you'd like, uh, this would be a good time to get off. And we'll say thanks for listening. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. Send questions to questions at rado.com. Otherwise, have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, and, Jen, are you ever going to watch Rise of Skywalker? We've had it for weeks now.
1: Uh, apparently tonight. Oh, So I will leave.
0: Okay. Because
1: if you talk about it now, I will
0: definitely... Well, yeah, it'd be fresh in your mind, certainly.
1: So I'll see you. So long. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. I don't know if you could hear that because she was already halfway out the door, folks. (laughs) I will now get back into my original seat and get comfy because I was sitting in the uncomfortable seat. Yikes. Okay, so... uh, Right. You're talking about the the confrontation. I thought... What's interesting. You're talking about... The beat between Ray and Kylo, and obviously that's not the part of that scene that everybody's gonna, um, you know, really uh, think about. That, uh, unless you are talking about Han Solo making his appearance. Um, but honestly, of course, that scene, like everything in the movie, was spectacularly done. J.J. Uh, Abrams is an amazing filmmaker, and while maybe you know he doesn't. He's maybe a bit more rapid cut visually than you know. I might like. I mean, there's no denying he makes a really gorgeous production, and yeah, everything about that looked great. But I wasn't particularly keen on anything in the scene. Uh, it was marred to a large part by a very clumsy and ham-handed way to try to make, uh, to try to use Carrie Fisher. And I I don't begrudge the filmmakers the challenges they had of trying to come up with some. Way to make Carrie Fisher a meaningful player in the events of the movie because all they were doing was cobbling together, you know, B roll footage from previous films. And so, yeah, I mean, they did the best they could, but no, they didn't. Because here's the thing: Uh, I know I've talked about this on the Weekly Alaboom. You know, right after I saw it, you know. So if you really want to know how I feel about it, go watch the uh, go to Undead Vikings channel and find the Weekly Alaboom episode that aired the week after. Or Rise of Skywalker, or maybe it was two weeks. I think maybe he put a moratorium. We couldn't talk about it the first week, so enough people were able to get to see it. But if you go find that episode, and if you need me to, I'll, I'll help you find it, because uh, there's a lot in there. I, I talked in great length, you know, breaking down beat by beat the entire movie and how deeply, fundamentally disappointed I was about everything. Although, to be fair, I did also identify the things that I thought were good. Although as time has gone on, those are harder to remember and I mostly don't re- I remember the things I don't like. And my problem with the C scene was... Uh, okay. Um, first of all... My problem, my, my problem with that, with that scene is yet another example of them having no good idea of what to do with Finn. Finn started out this entire new trilogy as the most promising character, uh, the one with the most interesting stuff going on, the one I really wanted to see. And by the end, uh, he is just the running around, following Ray, shouting Ray machine, and that's all he does. And I could go into a whole separate thing about him, but it was just yet another. Oh, he runs up and he gets hit by a wave, and he just. Destra- detra- det- Extra- and it's like, oh, th- th- why are you here? This is dumb. This is stupid. Th- you know, th- this is, it's not helping your character. It's not moving the scene forward. It's a distraction. And, um, then the, uh, you know, the fight obviously was very well staged. It was really well done, you know, full of spectacular stuff. And, uh, yeah, the, the, so, um, Leia is reaching out. I assume you're talking about the, the, this scene. And I have I, to me, it's been so long. I, I haven't seen it since it was first the week it came out. So I don't remember the exact timing. But Leia gets a sense through the Force. And she... And, and, and Alien Lady, Maz, whatever, says, What's going on? And she's, and she's, I have to go. And she lays down. Because, of course, they use a body double, presumably. And she basically goes to sleep. And all that she does, all that she accomplishes is she distracts Kylo Ren so that he can get stabbed. And I'm like, What? How does that work? That makes no sense. That's, I, in theory, she was trying to reach out to the good in him or something like that. But the practical application of her influence is she got her son stabbed because he dropped his his guard for a second. Was that her intention? Who knows? It was all very terrible. And the thing is, it's one of those examples of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, because you know, shortly after that. Um, was it after that? Again, I don't remember the timing, but Harrison Ford appears. You know, Han Solo ghost, not really a ghost, really, um, more just. You have to assume the filmmakers would say, "Oh, uh, it's just him grappling with his own internal dialogue, and it's visually represented by Han Solo because he's not really a force ghost." I think I think they did say that. But here's the thing: um, Have Han Solo come in at that moment? Uh, you know, I have. Have the mysterious thing happen where Leia collapses and she goes to sleep and she basically never wakes up. You know? Um, And when Han Solo, when Harrison Ford comes in and um, says, whatever he says, he says, Hey, kid. One really simple line could have changed that entire scene and made it such a gut punch and so powerful. And all he had to say was, Hey, kid. Your mother sent me. And then everything Leia did, because, of course, they couldn't do much with her, but the fact that she would have been able... To you know, through her mastery of the Force, which they established, she was a Force user, and she could do that. That she could basically, she's using a version of the trick that um, Luke used. Hey, I'm going to astrally project myself across the galaxy. It's so, um, it's so hard. It's so, it's so hard to do. It'll kill me, but I'm going to do this to save the rebellion, and I will become the legend that the galaxy needs me to be. Which is all very powerful, very good stuff in Jedi. Okay. Have Leia do the exact same thing um, because you've got Harrison Ford, he's alive. He can codify the incredible sacrifice she made by giving it words that Carrie Fisher could no longer do, and um, you know that you know she is basically projecting not herself because she had decided she cannot get through to Kylo anymore, but she knows that um, that Han Solo still can, that she, her father can get through to him, and so she projects that. It kills her, and you know it's it's a direct callback to what came in Last Jedi. It's something you could very easily do with the assets that are available to you, and it would make that entire scene so much more powerful because you know Kylo is talking to his dad, but he's really talking to his mom. His mom is making one last connection that she could never have made with him uh, while they were alive, and it's and it's just like that would just been that would have been so amazing. And it just requires one line of dialogue that it did not occur to them to, to write. And that drives me nuts. Um, so that's why, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy for you that the scene is so powerful. But for us, or for, for me, I should say, because uh, I haven't watched it yet, maybe we'll find out tonight. Uh, it, was, it just it's like, oh my gosh. Um, and you know, while I'm at it, one other thing that really drove me nuts, because it's getting back to Finn. When Finn meets the, uh, uh, the deserters, and he asked, why did you do it? I don't even remember what the script was, what they said. But what they should have said when he was talking to them is, it's because of you. Because of what you did. Because of the choice you made. And you inspired all of us. And that would have been so amazing. And that would have been a really wonderful um, moment. you know, A capping moment for Vin on his overall journey to you know, being a whole and complete person. And they didn't. And the thing is, I've now since seen the lion's share of what was in the Colin Trevorrow original script that the Disney executives rejected, and that one was so much better. And it feels like all the potentially almost amazing things that they just kind of fumble, like that scene with Finn and the, the deserters, they would have been amazing in the original. Um... And so it's just a, the whole thing is a what could have been now, and it really kind of makes me bummed. Um, but I think it's amazing. For, oh, and then you also asked, what I think about the ending. You'd hope for a longer ending. Uh, maybe you love Star Wars too much and wanted more. I I, don't, I remember the whole ending being just laughable. And um, and then the kiss. Why are they kissing? I you know I don't know. I mean, when uh, at the end of Jedi, which I love, the Last Jedi, uh, when, when Rose kisses. Finn, To me, there was nothing romantic about that at all, other than just kind of an esprit de corps. Um, you know, I love you, dummy. Uh, you know, because we're in this together, as opposed to I feel romantic feelings for you. Um, compared to the end of Last Jedi, that kiss to me felt very much like, oh, look, we're trying to deliver on the romance that we everybody always wanted. We're trying to give that um, uh, that Raylo uh, thing, and it's like that's completely out of left field, completely just. Makes no sense here, um, you know. There uh, and you know everything about the emperor makes no sense. What he's trying to do, his plan literally changes from sentence to sentence. He's oh, I need to do this. Oh, that's not working. Ah, I need to do this other thing, and it, and it's completely inconsistent with everything I've done up until now in the movie. Um, so yeah, uh, very few things I liked. I did like Chewie's metal. And I know a lot of people hated that because they thought it was fan service, but people didn't understand. I mean, this is one thing I remember. That that medal was just, oh, look, Chewie gets a medal at long last. That was... It wasn't the medal of saying, good job, Chewie. Um, that was the medal that Carrie Fisher, that, or not Carrie Fisher, that, that Princess Leia had carried with her. And that was her touchstone that reminded her of her love for Han Solo and everything they'd been through because that was his medal. And Chewie taking that, it was nothing about good job Chewie, it was about this is the ultimate keepsake of you know two of your greatest friends who you've lost. And that's why it's so important that he got that medal. And it's just amazing to me that nobody understands that. And that's a really powerful scene. Although, unfortunately, it's rendered completely moved because Chewie should be dead at that point because of the stupid mid-thing of the uh, bait-and-switch where, oh, Chewie's dead? No, he's alive. That could have been an amazing, incredibly powerful moment that would have raised the stakes for everything and I think would have been an appropriate use of Chewbacca but they just they don't have the courage of their convictions and if that was bad the way um C3PO was you know made such an incredible sacrifice and then two scenes later oh no we're just going to undo it all it's fine and just everything about that movie just just fills me with sadness um I am not as big a Star Wars fan as you I I love Star Wars um but you know not as much as you would think based on how much I talk about it it's just that I think I represent a voice that really loves Star Wars, but is not a diehard Star Wars fan. So I can appreciate... That's why I think I can appreciate Last Jedi, which does thumb its nose at conventions and tries to reinvent what it means to be Star Wars. And I I welcome that. Um, I welcomed what Lo- George Lucas did when he was ready to try and do fundamentally different things within the constraints of the universe he uh, created in the prequels. And most people are like this isn't Star Wars. Like Star Wars is whatever Star Wars can be a million things. And I love that it would could reinvent itself. And I love that read Last Jedi, even though it sticks so closely to the Empire formula, is able to reinvent it. Um, you know the fundamental precepts. And then of course Skywalker throws all that away. And um yeah, and then as for the actual ending, what the hell? Uh, you know, what's your name, Ray? Ray who? What, one. That's just that's clumsy. Why would anybody even ask that? But whatever. Um, Ray Skywalker. No, if she's gonna give herself a last name, it's Ray Organa because Princess Leia was her Jedi master, not Luke. She spent all of of three hours with Luke, or you know, or twenty four hours, or whatever. Um and of course you have to because oh it's the title of the is The Last Skywalker. But that to me, I walked out well boy, Leia really got gypped because she put in the work. She spent the years continuing to train her and, and guide her and all that. And I actually liked that at the beginning. I loved it when she called uh Leia master. I thought, oh my god, that's amazing. And um but then uh what's your Ray? Skywalker, like uh, whatever. Um ugh. Ugh, anyway, sorry. Um yeah, I, I feel like I'm running out of steam. So I'm just going to end it right there, folks. And uh, say once again, thanks for listening. As always, please feel free to send your questions, even if they're Star Wars or politics. And next month, if there's a lot of politics, but again, so I really apologize. I know a lot of you don't want to hear it at all. So I think... I was joking about it earlier, but I will actually make a separate politics section. Just like I have now effectively have a separate Star Wars section for after the credits. Um, and uh, otherwise... More questions. questions for raw.com Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.